Hey, um, I've got, it's more of a joke than an urban legend, but I've heard it said many years. There's a mental hospital around where I live, and supposedly back in the 60s and 70s, they had a couple patients escape. And so they came on the radio and did sort of like one of those emergency broadcast things, letting people know the description of the person. So this lady is driving home one night down the Enola Road, which is a really long road, and it's kind of wooded and secluded. And all of a sudden, wouldn't you know it, her tire goes out. So she stops and she's panicking because she's just heard there's a mental patient escaped. So she pulls over. She's scared. She starts taking off the flat tire. She puts all the lug nuts in the hubcap of her car to try and keep them together. And as she rushes around to the back end of her car, she takes the hubcap, and all of a sudden, all the lug nuts just go scattered to the wind. So she starts to panic even more, and she's sobbing because she's thinking, oh, my God, I'm going to get got. And all of a sudden, she hears this voice from the bush going, hey, lady, if you take one lug nut from all the other wheels, you'll be able to get home okay. She goes, oh, okay, thank you. So she goes and does that and puts the flat tire in the trunk of her car and says, Whoever that was, thank you. And the voice comes back, Lady, I'm crazy. I'm not an idiot. It doesn't. Have you heard the story of... And written on the wall... And everyone blood. has the different stories of, Oh, this happened to my brother. This happened to my telling you stories of the old... There was this girl. It was back when we were little kids. To find out the truth regarding one of the most enduring tales in American lore. A story behind the story. Because it's just a story. Hello and welcome to the Just A Story Podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And we're here to tell you a story. Each week we take a look at the stories that we tell over and over again. What our fears and fables, myths and misdeeds say about us as humans. We want to welcome all of you hilarious listeners back. We know you're the funniest. We do. And I want to begin this week with a weekly affirmation because you're the bestest and we all know that's true each and every one of you has your own unique qualities that you bring to this lovely lovely journey that we all take together and i want to remind you all that we live in a world in which there was once a showstopper chart topper song that actually contained the lyrics of letters i destroyed books that we enjoyed tonight the way things look I need a book by Sigmund Freud. How brainy he was. And I want you to ponder that. Wait, it says how brainy he was? How brainy he was. How brainy this songwriter was. Exactly. And maybe one day, if we all work really hard, we can make America brainy again. One day. One day. We do want to thank all of you for coming back, all you brainy, hilarious listeners. And thanks for leaving ratings and reviews on iTunes. Also want to encourage all of you to reach out to us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at JustAStoryPod. You can also find us at our website at JustAStoryPod.com. And there we keep all of the sources, all of the knowledges, all of the things. And we also have all of my artwork and links to all of our past episodes and links to our merch store where we sell merchy merch merch merch. T-shirts and mugs and shirts of all sorts that are not tea. And we've been doing exclusive designs monthly and... You can check that out every month to see what design is up. Our Jackalope one was a raving success. It was raving, all right. And you should log on to see what is there now, future listeners. 
On there, you'll also find links to our Patreon page. Patreon. Patreon is a service that allows you to become a sustaining member in the Just a Story cause, just like you would for an NPR station. But we don't hound you like they do. No, no, no. It's of your own free will that you get to go to Patreon and sign up to be a contributor. Or a patron, if you will. And we had two people do that recently that we'd like to say thank you to. Right, Ryan Detloff and Headphone Cinderella. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, y'all. And one other way to reach out to us is the Urban Legend Hotline. That's right. You can call the Urban Legend Hotline at 512-222-3375. And if you call right now, we'll double your offer. Of listening to you. That's right. We'll listen to two of your stories. If you act the next five minutes, some exclusions may apply in Wisconsin and or Kentucky. Void where prohibited. But this week's episode was inspired by a call on the Urban Legend Hotline. That's right. Someone called and told us a joke. And there's nothing I like better than a joke. Oh, really, Sam? Can you tell me your favorite joke? My favorite joke? Um, Two muffins were in the oven. And one muffin said to the other muffin, man, it's hot in here. And the other muffin said, oh my god, a talking muffin! So we received a joke. And I said... We should do a whole episode on that. And he said, what do you mean? And I said, jokes. And so that's not really funny. What's not really funny? Me in general? Um, no. No? Well, no. Jokes. Jokes in general. Jokes are a form of folklore. One may call them joke lore. Which I do. Indeed. And like, other people do as well. I know. I think it's clever. But we started talking about joke lore, and we ended up diving into this idea of humor as culture. Humor is so interesting because it is something that is pervasive. Right. All cultures have humor. And there was even one study that was done called Laugh Lab. And it was recently, it was online. And they posted jokes and had people rate them, but they also allowed people to submit their own jokes as well to kind of go in the queue. Mm-hmm. So over 40,000 jokes were sent in with millions of responses. Do you want to know the most popular one? I do. I love jokes. What's brown and sticky? A stick. It's a stick. It's a stick. Okay. It was submitted 300 times. I hate that joke. Just it's, it's just as good as your muffin joke. No, it's not. It's a terrible joke. You want to hear another joke? You want to hear a dirty joke? Yes. A white horse rolled in the mud. No. Yes. <laughs> By the way, normally the worst jokes are, the more I like them. <laughs> but it was interesting because they were able to look at jokes through different cultures. And so in Germany, apparently they thought all the jokes were funny. <laughs> Those indiscriminate Germans? Wait. Wait. I was confused by that. Scandinavians were kind of in the middle. But every time they would submit a joke, they'd include ha 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 at the end. <laughs> no, shut up. That's fake. So Americans, this is not going to be shocking, had an affinity for insults or vague threats. So here's one that was submitted. A Texan says, hey, where are you from? And a Harvard grad says, I come from a place where we don't end questions with prepositions. And the Texan says, okay, where are you from, jackass? That's a grammar joke, but yes, also a veiled threat. <laughs> now Europeans liked more absurd or surreal jokes. And here's one. So a patient goes into his doctor and says, last night, I made a Freudian slip. I was having dinner with my mother-in-law, and I wanted to say, can you please pass the butter? And instead, I said, 
you silly cow, you've completely ruined my life. (laughs) Whoopsie doopsie. So whether you are laughing or not at these jokes, which we hear you all laughing, don't worry. And you one, you person that says that's so funny instead of laughing, you're a monster. You're a monster. You're broken. Just kidding. I love you. So in the brain, we're getting our reward system activated. Dopamine is being released. And this is an important part of humor. And you can even see it on functional MRIs whenever tests are done and they tell people jokes or show them funny cartoons. And they see this dopamine reward circuit activating. It's the same areas you see activated with chocolate, sex, food, cocaine, etc. So are you telling me the Freudian slip joke is the same as cocaine? Almost. It taps into something that makes us very human, this reward system that we have. But it's not something that you only see in humans. By eliciting these centers, in, such as mice, you can make them laugh as well. I think we talked about the laughing mice a little on our feral children episode. Mm-hmm. And Radio Lab talked about it a lot. You need to check that out, too. But as times change... Humor, in a way, in the structure that it's formatted, remains constant. You can see this by looking at old jokes that are still funny. You can even go all the way back to Roman times, such as this one, where Gregarious Barber asks how he should cut a man's hair. I thought Gregarious Barber was a name. It is. (laughs) And Greg says, (laughs) and the customer says, quietly. Aw, poor Greg. But humor obviously cannot be explained in terms of content or subject matter because that will vary within culture of what's funny. Right. A group of individuals can respond, you know, completely differently with the same content. It's where you get the like, dude, read the room. Right. Or, you know, you, you can't come from like France and start telling the same jokes in America and expect to get the same response. Yeah, there's actually a really great episode of This American Life, now that we're hawking other podcasts, apparently, at the top of our own, where they follow a French comedian who has come to try and be funny in America. Exactly. So one researcher, Alistair Clark, developed this new idea about the pattern recognition theory of humor. Now he says jokes are funny because they use our ever-so-important ability to problem-solve and our pattern recognition systems. So we have these, you know, highly developed pattern recognition systems that, you know, kind of separate us from the beast. Mm. And by violating these standard patterns, that's what makes something funny. Okay, I buy that. Because kids will laugh. Like, if you do something they can't understand, like peekaboo even. Like, where did you go? Oh, you're back. Ha ha ha. Hilarious. You had me worried there for a second. Exactly. Exactly. It has, like, something like that has that process of a surprise repetition it forms this clear basic pattern of course as infants develop their pattern recognition becomes more complex Mm -hmm. and peekaboo will not make them laugh hysterically which is always a very disappointing moment for any parent eventually your jokes will also fail to make them laugh hysterically never We were recently trying to teach our six-year-old about jokes at the dinner table. We were all telling jokes and like watching him respond and laugh. And then he would try to tell a joke. (laughs) And he picked up the patterns that we were using, like the knock-knock pattern or the like, what do you call a cow with no legs? Ground beef. And he knew that if you said, like, did something 
absurd to an animal and gave it a name. It was supposed to be funny. But then it like morphed into this weird, like when he would try to tell a joke, there it lacked something. What did it lack? It's so hard to put your finger on it. It lacked kind of context. Right. And he would say like, what is a sun plus a fish equal a sunfish? But the thing is, he was picking up on these linguistic ideas of combining two things and getting an absurd answer. And that's kind of what makes a joke. Because this really ties in with our inborn grammar ideas. Right, uh, of Noam Chomsky fame. What do you call a lawn ornament who believes that the government is a huge conspiracy? Noam Chomsky? A Noam Chomsky, yes, exactly. It's hilarious. You're right, I'm funny. Can't win them all. (laughs) Shows what you know. (laughs) But as kids' language and grammar starts to develop and become more complex, their jokes do as well, and the jokes that they can understand and appreciate and what they'll laugh at. I don't know if mine has. (laughs) I laugh at everything. Keep working on it. I don't wanna. But there's a famous quote by Aristotle that he says that a baby doesn't have a soul until it laughs. Citing that it doesn't happen until they're about 40 days old, which is, is about right. <laughs> so he could count, yeah. and he had seen babies. And he would recognize the pattern. But it is interesting that he says, you know, like, we're not fully human until we have this ability to understand humor. And as we all know, the only thing that makes a joke funnier... Oh, yes. The only thing that makes a joke funnier, I know where you're going with this. Is to explain it. Oh, is when I tell it. Okay, fine. Same thing. Yeah. Yeah, same thing. But E.B. White even said, and I think this quote was done in a spider web. Oh. Not sure. Humor can be dissected as a frog can, but the thing dies in the process and the innards are discouraging to any but the purely scientific mind. That's pretty clever. So let's dissect the hell out of this frog. Oh, buddy. We're going to ruin pretty much every joke you've ever heard. (laughs) Not true. So what we consider comedy today and what was considered comedy 100 years ago is very different, especially when it comes to like stand-up comedy. Mm -hmm. But that really has been translated into movies and TV and writing, etc. All forms of media. Because initially, a comedian would tell jokes like what did one muffin say to the other muffin like joke jokes joke jokes so what's a joke joke a joke joke has like a setup and has kind of a a funny absurd ending Mm -hmm. and so you would see this in people like buddy hackett milton burl red skeleton and they would get up and they would kind of tell like sharp quippy little jokes and stories and one liners Mm -hmm. and Pendulette commented on this saying, a joke is a way to say, I'm going to do something funny now, but if I don't get a laugh at the end, I'm a failure. Always the optimist, that man. So I think it's interesting because I think there were sort of stand-up comedians before there were stand-up comedians. I have always thought that Mark Twain doing his lectures might have been the birth of American stand-up. Well, the Modern Humorist Award is named after him. Right. And there was, obviously, there was Mark Twain, and then there was the joke jokes, and the physical comedy, and the Marx Brothers, and then there was Bob Hope. And Bob Hope has kind of gotten a bad rap, 
more than kind of. Bob Hope has a bad rap, and Bob Hope is sort of faded from the annals of comedy history. Like, no one remembers him as a comedian, primarily. Yeah, everyone remembers him for, like, going doing USO shows. Right. But not his jokes. Exactly. So... Interestingly enough, I decided to research Bob Hope because I wanted to know whatever happened to him and why we don't talk about him, why no one's interested. And I found out through my research, and this is a patented theory that I would like to put forward, that Bob Hope is actually the Forrest Gump of American media. Really? Yes, it's true. Did he get shot in the buttocks? Almost. He was born in England, which I didn't know. To me, Bob Hope is as American as apple pie, which I guess... Being born in England doesn't necessarily disqualify one from that. But he was born in 1903, and then he and his family moved to Cleveland in 1907. He worked on vaudeville, which one writer for the New York Post, I'm sorry, for the New Yorker, said, apparently working on vaudeville was a lot like writing for the Huffington Post, something one could just do. Sick burn, bro. And then he began a Broadway career in 1927 and starred in a short film in 1934. He became famous for the song... Thanks for the memory, which is what I quoted to you in your weekly affirmation, the one about Freud. Thanks for not singing it. But it was featured in his first full-length film in 1938. And he began the Pepsodent show starring Bob Hope the same year. which Keeps your teeth clean and white. Clean and white. Um, until 1950 that went on. But my mother and father still use Pepsodent toothpaste, and I wonder if this is why. <laughs> do they sing the song while they use it? Now they do in my head. But... He was successful on radio, television, and film. He also hosted the Oscars 18 times, which is quite impressive. He had this line that he said where he's like, it's time for the Oscars again, or as we call it at my house, Passover. Ha ha ha. Ha ha ha. Because he never got Oscars. But he began working with the USO around the time of World War II. Now, Richard Zoglin is probably his most thorough biographer. And he'd also, before taking up the subject of hope, written on the culture of comedy. And he was interviewing a lot of comedians who came to prominence during the 1970s and 80s, such as Jerry Seinfeld and Steve Martin and others. And he would ask them about their influences. And he said he thought it was so interesting because none of them ever mentioned Bob Hope. And he was one of the greatest comedians of his time. Yes, now, Zonklin kind of believed that Bob Hope invented modern stand-up comedy, which I think is a point that can and would be argued by a lot of people. But he believes this because of the way that he did his broadcast on the radio. He said he told the writers to read the papers and come up with lines about what's happening in the world or what's happening in Bob Hope's life, his golf game, his friendship with Bing Crosby or something, Zonklin says. This whole idea of having stand-up comedy week after week that actually drew on the outside world was, believe it or not, something new. That, of course, is what every stand-up comedian does today, pretty much. Now, he was once loved through the entire country and over much of the world. But when he died at age 100, because if you're Forrest Gump, you live 100 years. That's what you do. You have a century. Laughter's the best medicine. His reputation was already fading, tarnished, and being actively disparaged. He kind of outlived his usefulness and he'd come to be seen as being sort of sexist and homophobic as so many men of his generation were yes were viewed were (laughs) but there were elements of his style that really do stick around 
he was very self-deprecating and very self-aware and sort of did this fourth wall breaking act. And he would be in the middle of telling a joke and sort of be like, ah, blame the writers for that one or whatever. And it resonated with people because as Zoglin says, here was this guy telling jokes and here was this guy making a joke out of himself telling jokes or trying to tell jokes, trying to entertain an audience. I think that was something pretty new in comedy too. Yeah, you can relate to that self-deprecation. You can relate to screwing up a joke. Right. Everyone's done it. We do it every week. We do do it every week. And we st- we get to edit and you still get to hear us do it every week. We cut like only half of them out. So Bob Hope is remembered for the USO, but he's also remembered for his work with Bing Crosby. Him and David Bowie. Him and David Bowie. How is Bob Hope like David Bowie? It's a riddle. Choose the correct door. But before Bing was a forgotten search engine, it was a Crosby, and a Crosby was doing quite well on the charts. He was a recording star, and he met Bob Hope in, on Broadway, and Bob was emceeing a show that Bing was going to be in, and they did some like impromptu work together, like silly little bits, and they had really good chemistry. And this was in 1932, but they didn't reconnect for five years because Bob Hope loved Broadway and really thought that that was the highest form of art while Bing was out in California, you know, slumming it in Hollywood. However, Hope would go slum it in Hollywood eventually, too, and they reconnected in 1937. They began working together again, and they starred in a movie called The Road to Singapore in 1940, which was the highest grossing film of the year, and it led to a series of road movies, like Road to Not Perdition, but other places. That wasn't a remake? That is not a remake. But they were kind of slapstick comedies and had like a buddy vibe and they rode camels and things. It was fun. It was fun. But there were seven of these movies. So he kind of anticipated this franchise reboot, remake, cinematic universe thing that we all live in today before it was cool. But the on screen dynamic between the two kind of became a cornerstone of Hope's entire appeal and his identity as a performer. They actually got along pretty well and did enjoy working together. They had a pretty positive relationship, but they never like made real friends and it kind of drove Bob Hope up the wall. He complained that like in all the years I've known him, Bing's never once invited me and Dolores over for dinner. And this is the kind of thing that would irk him. No retreating to the study with a whiskey and a cigar? No. He's never asked to come over and play with the cool kids. And you kind of get that feeling from him. The more I read about him, the more I had this feeling of, like, always the bridesmaid. Like, he just could never quite be the cool kid. But then we begin his career with the USO. So he started entertaining the troops before World War II was official before we were officially in the war. And in this way, he was unique. But Hollywood would take World War II very seriously and become very involved in a number of ways. Oh, yeah. Like, if you want to know more about that, pause, go watch. Five came back. It was a great documentary on this on Netflix. Like, now. Like, seriously. Like, you don't need to hear anything else we have to say until you know everything that everyone on that film has to say. It's so good. Some people enlisted. Some stars went to fight. And that was really cool of them. Much appreciated. And there were other stars who manned, like, the Hollywood Canteen, which is a really interesting story that we may tackle in a future episode. And then others joined the USO. And Bob Hope was very much involved in that 
And he would send out radio broadcasts and things like that for the troops until the summer of 1943 when it became safe enough for him to go overseas to Europe. He made his first trip that summer going to European theater in North Africa. And according to Zoglin, the trip was so amazing and he took risks. There were still bombing raids going on. They survived this bombing raids and the reaction of the troops. I mean, imagine you're a soldier fighting for democracy overseas at a time when the country felt its existence threatened. And you see a big Hollywood star show up days after you've been in battle. That was an amazingly powerful experience for the men. Now, eventually, these performances would be televised, beginning in 1955. The first of them was Hope in Greenland. And later, in 1958, Bob Hope in Moscow would be the first network television show broadcast from behind the Iron Curtain. So you see, he is all over history. <laughs> However, things began to change. Completely. Completely. Throughout the entire world, and especially in American culture. Now, while Bob Hope in Vietnam which showed his 1969 Christmas tour of Vietnam area and aired in 1970, did end up attracting the largest audience for any entertainment show in TV history to date. That didn't mean that everyone was on Bob Hope's side when it came to Vietnam. No, because Bob Hope was on the establishment side. Oh, and that's a very dangerous place to be. The man. So, in response to the lack of support that he perceived for American soldiers fighting in Vietnam, he sort of doubled down on his patriotism, and he became a symbol for the war and for the elitism of politicians back home in the United States. Zoglin says, his tours to entertain troops during World War II had made him a national hero. By the turbulent 1960s, he was a court-approved jester. The establishment's comedian. And there's nothing more antithetical than a government-appointed jester. And the jester is supposed to be making fun of the government, making fun of the king. In theory. But that didn't stop Bob Hope. He went to Vietnam every year for nine years, even though he was losing touch with the younger generation that he was sent to entertain and inspire. Now here, for your listening pleasure, are a sample of Bob Hope's finest Vietnam jokes. <laughs> oh, I'm so excited. He said to a group of men on an aircraft carrier, For anyone that hates being here on this boat, how'd you like to be here without it? Or this one. Good news! The folks back home are behind you. 50%. At least that was true. That's hilarious. Don't worry about these riots in the U.S. They'll send you through survival school before they send you back. Everything's going up there. Back home. Prices. Taxes. Miniskirts. Miniskirts are bigger than ever. Even some of the fellas are wearing them. Oh, don't laugh. If you'd thought of it, you wouldn't be here. That's pretty good. <laughs> I know. He's pretty good. But his special aired back in the U.S. and it ended with performers leading the soldiers in a rendition of Silent Night, which is a song that he and Bing made very popular in White Christmas. But it had the following voiceover. If there's anything an actor hates, it's losing an audience. I hope this one's real careful. This war gets bigger every year. And as the war gets bigger, the casualties grow. Despite millions of words that have been spoken and written, there's no easy answer to this conflict. We hope and pray that before too long, the peace for which we're all yearning will become a reality. With God's help, this will be the year. We had a great Christmas. Thanks for the memory. It couldn't be more tone deaf. Yeah. 
Zoglin writes, the comedian who wanted to be loved by everyone became a symbol of the war that people hated. It became difficult for him to fill out the USO bill because performers didn't want to be associated with a pro-war side of the argument. He was giving his names to pro-war events such as Richard Nixon's National Unity Week. Who don't don't hit your wagon to him. No, no. Tricky Dick's going to come back and bite you in the ass, Bob. But he also became more scathing about peaceniks. He told an interviewer, one group is fighting for their country and one group is fighting against it. They're giving aid and comfort to the enemy. You'd call these same people traitors if we declared war. I don't know who he means declare war on them, I guess. I don't know. (laughs) He just was so tone deaf. He did not see how much culture was changing. I mean, as so many people of his generation just hoped it was just a blip. They would just go away. Something about him reminds me of George Wallace. Like this That's well- a hell of an analogy. <laughs> I know, and I can't explain like what it is, but there's like this very misguided but earnest, like just really problematic dinosaur that you can't call into the modern age. Like there's no easy way to like to shake that worldview off of a person. If you want to learn about George Wallace in five minutes or less. <laughs> it's not less than five minutes, it's like seventeen minutes long. <laughs> Go listen to Drive-By Truckers, three great Alabama icons. We're going to send you everywhere this episode. You've got so much homework to do. What are you doing here with us talking about funny things? Right. He was very, he had a very hard time adjusting to the cultural shifts that were happening around him. And one of his key writers, Mel Shavelson, said that Hope never really understood the public thinking on Vietnam because he rarely discussed the war with anyone below a five-star general. I don't know if you can call discussing things with a five-star general like an ivory tower syndrome, but it's definitely being within the machine. A camo tower? Maybe. Maybe. So he, just in case you hadn't caught the fact that he is like on Team Nixon, he actually worked with his re-election campaign in 1971. And this was kind of a landmark thing because... Hollywood stars had been banned from public political activism, especially in regard to elections, by the studios until this election cycle. And there were many, many people that came out in support of McGovern on the left and against the war. Now, I did not realize this. Nixon won 49 states in that election. One could say he had the upper hand. Well, he had the upper hand around the throat of anyone that might oppose him. The tapes to prove it. But I loved the way one writer put it in their article. They said, as sometimes happened, hope was better than his material. Watergate forced Nixon's resignation and the end of his political career in 1974. By the end of Vietnam, Bob Hope himself was well past his peak. And so that's sort of the downfall of hope. (laughs) The downfall of hope. That sounds terrible. It's just, it begs for puns. His name is just, like, it just lends itself to puns. Vietnam was the downfall of hope. Okay. Well, oh, there was, like, a pamphlet handed out at the University of Michigan where he was going to speak. And, like, the text on it said, uh, where there's death, there's hope. Like, good luck not doing that. But in my research, I did come across a couple of stories from soldiers about Bob Hope's influence on the morale in Vietnam. And one man, Donald Scott, wrote, Being new in the country, I was on duty as an aerial port duty officer and did not get to attend the show. That evening, as they took off, they were flying out to their next destination. 
We called the plane when the call signed Sky King from our airlift control element and spoke to Bob. He summoned Anita Bryant to the microphone and she sang Silent Night to us as they flew through the dark black skies of Vietnam. I will never forget this little act of kindness for a small group of us, about five guys who could not attend the big show. Another soldier named Jerry Tobias is in charge of transport to and from the shows, and he wrote about the experience. The flights to the shows were pretty much normal troop transport flights. The troops were still mostly expressionless. They were just glad to get a break from war. But each return flight from the shows was absolutely not normal. The emotional weight of the airplane seemed to be a thousand pounds lighter, also totally different was the restored expression of life in the troops' faces. It was amazing. It was as though Bob Hope had turned the light back on in their souls. That, I believe, was the result not of the men having been entertained, but having been appreciated. The very genuine care and appreciation that Bob Hope and the rest of his cast expressed to the troops in a couple of hours during each USO show was therefore probably quite literally the most encouragement and support that many of these young men had experienced before during, and sadly in some cases, even after their tours of duty. Bob Hope entertained, yes, but he also imported a sincere value and respect to men and women who had not received much of either for a long, long time. We as a nation owe him, and those who have followed after him in the USO endeavors, more than we could ever repay. So while it cost him his reputation, in a national sense, I think it was probably still fulfilling for him. Well, I mean, he definitely did some good. You know, he was there. He was able to brighten at least a few people's day, even if he was the government-appointed jester. Which is now my favorite image. But Zoglin wrote about his kind of fall from grace this way. Bob Hope was the establishment. Bob Hope was friends with Nixon. Bob Hope was speaking in favor of the Vietnam War. Bob Hope was expressing the kind of backward, suburban, wasp view of minorities, homosexuals, and the women's movement. Even his comments on the women's movement were very condescending. He did a special in the 1970s on that movement, and it was so silly, so backward. And in his act, the woman, who had some big political office, was dusting the chairs between her meetings. It was just awful. He got mail from feminists. Oh no, not mail from feminists. Everyone should get mail from feminists. I got mail from feminists as a feminist writer. Anyway, he was clueless at that time. That was why the generation of comedians turned off to him. It's hard to be a comedian and be part of the establishment because comedians, their job is to satirize and poke fun at powerful people. And this was something that Bob Hose was, one of the powerful people. So just as a comedian, he became less and less relevant. So, yes, the greatest sin a comedian can commit is becoming part of the establishment. Right, and with all of this, with what caused that backlash against hope... Right? Is in part some of the things that really changed the trajectory of comedy. You had things like the Vietnam War. Previously, you had nuclear bombs being dropped in Japan. You had the constant threat with the Cold War and nuclear annihilation. And the Holocaust. I mean, that happened. Now, one researcher said before the atomic bomb, everyone had a sense that there was a future. Now we're at the hands of fate. We could go up at any moment. And our idea was something as horrendous as that. We became a little cynical. Just a skosh? Tiny bit. So it became that telling joke jokes was seen as just like a hack. This old style of joke telling was very much in line with the old kind of 
idea of what a man did. And he wasn't able to tell his feelings or express his experiences with things. Not reveal anything about their inner lives. And an interesting point one person said was that it was, it's always said, you know, like, women aren't funny. We're not. We're terrible. Take my boyfriend. <laughs> Please. Right? It's the same exact joke. It sounds terrible. <laughs> but it was signed that, you know, women tell stories. They tell more funny stories instead of this kind of one-liner quip joke jokes. And that's what comedy has become. And, of course, one of the reasons that women are more popular comedians now is that that has become a more appreciated style of humor. Well, and it's, you know, also the acknowledgement that women have an interior life, which for years, for years we were told was not the case. No, very true. But also, like you said, just going against the establishment has been forever the job of the jester. Right. Only the fool can laugh at the king. And so the ultimate fool that came about at this time that went against the king was Mr. Lenny Bruce. Lenny. So on October 4th of 1961, he was at the San Francisco Jazz Workshop doing a set. And Lenny Bruce is known for telling very lewd jokes, very using very obscene words, and talking about things no one else was talking about. I, I thought you'd appreciate this joke. Mm-hmm. He had a set on the phrase, to come. It says, to is a preposition, come is a verb, the verb intransitive, to come. I've heard these two words my whole adult life, and as a kid when I thought I was sleeping. To come. It's been like a big drum solo. Did you come? Did you come? Good. Did you come? Good. Now, if anyone in the room or the world finds those two words decadent, obscene, immoral, amoral, asexual, the words to come really make you feel uncomfortable. If you think I'm rank for saying it to you, you probably can't come. <laughs> now, he was in San Francisco, and there was a policeman in the audience, James Ryan, who'd been sent by his sergeant with instructions to see if there was anything of a lewd nature going on. And was there? Ryan was horrified by what he heard. So he couldn't come. Apparently. <sighs> he told his sergeant, Geez, you know, I can hardly believe this myself. The man is up there on stage, and he's performing, and he's taking the term cocksucker and using it. <laughs> so he was arrested after the show. For saying cocksucker. For obscenity. In San Francisco. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I think they have floats called that now in pride parades. So the sergeant, Solden, was talking to Bruce. I took exception. I took offense. We tried to elevate this street. I'm offended because you broke the law. I mean it sincerely. I mean it. I can't see any right, any way you can break it down. Break down this word. Our society's not geared to it. And Bruce replied, you break it down by talking about it. How about a word like clap? Well, clap is better than cocksucker. Not if you get a clap from a cocksucker. And if that man didn't laugh, if he didn't laugh at least a little... <laughs> Then he can't come either. <laughs> so he was locked up in a cell until the club owner bailed him out. And he returned to the jazz workshop in time for his 1 a.m. show. Announcing as he walked on the stage, you'll never guess where I've been. I've been busted. And this was one of numerous obscenity charges and arrests that he would face over the next few years. 
Now, see, the thing about Lenny Bruce is his comedy is really not circulated now. It kind of has become a little dated as people have taken on his style. Mm-hmm. And you have to think of him, if you go and listen to him on YouTube or anywhere, as that counterpart to the beat movement and the okay. jazz movement for comedy. He was Jack Kerouac. He would perform with other jazz musicians in sets. Cool. Bongos and things? No, like back to back. Okay. There was no snapping. Damn it. But his comedy was less like comedy and more like a a social commentary, which is kind of hard to separate the two nowadays. And let me tell you, when they are separated, I don't really like either. He didn't really have like any structure and he sounded very unrehearsed. Well, that's kind of what a lot of people go for now, at least. Don't you think? No, and he is the origin of that style. The rambling? Yes. He he made rambling a thing? He made rambling a thing. You can love him or hate him for it. I love him, obviously. <laughs> but he would just go on these rambling joints, go on these stories. It was kind of like a jazz musician would play. Like a beat poet would recite something. He might just ramble on and, and maybe not even get to a point. <laughs> I've done that a time or two. But he knew that humor happened when we connected with each other and I connected with other people's struggles and their ideas and their conclusions. And he was going for genuine connection and laughter. He said in one set, all laughter is involuntary. Try to fake four laughs in an hour. It'll take you away, man. You can't. And even one time, at the end of his big Carnegie Hall set, <laughs> he, he said he was going to end his act with a, a joke. He was going to tell a joke. Okay. And this is like a joke joke. So he said, I'm going to do something funny. He's like, I'm going to do this and it's going to be great. And we're not even going to need a curtain call because it's going to be so fantastic. He said this to the audience. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Okay. In much better phrasing. And he rambled for like 20 minutes. No. Where finally gets to the end of a joke. And I've seen comedians in the last 10 years do this. Yes. Yes, I have too. And then they finally get to that punchline, and it's hilarious because of the rambling, not because of the punchline. Right. Because of the delivery. And this is so often imitated. He said, I'm not a comedian, and I'm not sick. The world is sick, and I'm the doctor. I'm a surgeon with a scalpel for false values. I don't have an act. I just talk. I'm just Lenny Bruce. Who's a fan of saying, I'm Lenny Bruce? Yeah. He's like a gangster rapper, too. Lenny Bruce, y'all. Fun side note I did not know. He was working on a movie with Stanley Kubrick. Oh, that would have gone on for 18 hours. Never ended. As my favorite professor says, the mind cannot comprehend what the ass cannot endure. So in 1964, he was arrested twice in a week for obscenity during a stint at the Café Gogo in Greenwich Village. Now, the New York City officers were in the audience and they were collecting notes on his act. Who were the three guys not laughing? Exactly. Very stern faces. And he was arrested and charged and indicted by a grand jury on violating New York's obscenity laws, which barred obscene, indecent, immoral, and impure dram play <sighs> exhibition entertainment, which would tend to the corruption of the morals of youth and others. Who do they mean when they said and others? I have a feeling it's women. <laughs> Probably so. And during testimony, all the officers recounted 
the performance from their notes telling the jokes they'd written down poorly from Lenny Bruce's act. Okay, I just want to tell you, I think that is a circle of hell. Like, I actually think that Dante describes it. Like, hearing your jokes or your words read back to you badly. By police officers that arrested you. Makes it, no, it makes it ten times worse. Ah, By people who disagree with you in general. Exactly. (laughs) He said, I'm going to be judged by his bad timing, his ego, and his garbled language. You're doing it wrong. (laughs) So, of course, they... The prosecution had expert witnesses and psychologists and professors and all showing you just how terrible the name Bruce was. But Bruce's legal team countered with kind of the same thing, having reputable psychiatrists testify that Bruce's performance was not sexually arousing. Oh, well, thanks. Thanks for that. I'm so glad you came here today just to make sure everyone knew. (laughs) Media experts who testified that the performance did not offend local community standards of New York. Of Greenwich Village. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And also literary and art critics who testified to the social importance of Bruce's brand of humor. Now, Bruce also presented a petition signed by people including Allen Ginsberg, Paul Newman, Bob Dylan, Elizabeth Taylor, and Norman Mailer, among others. And the petition said, whether we regard Bruce as a moral spokesman or simply as an entertainer, we believe he should be allowed to perform free from censorship or harassment. Bob Dylan wrote a song about him. You gonna sing it for me? I'm not. No. Hey, Bruce. So he was convicted, and he appealed the decision, but before the appeal could go through, he was found dead of a morphine overdose in 1966 on the toilet with a needle in his arm and his electric typewriter. On the page, it read, Conspiracy to interfere with the Fourth Amendment. Fourth Amendment, huh? Unlawful search and seizure? I don't know why he was writing about the Fourth Amendment on the toilet, but maybe it's part of this grand conspiracy to execute popular entertainers on the toilet, such as Elvis. Probably so. Probably so. Now, one of the New York DAs who prosecuted Bruce said, We drove him into poverty and bankruptcy and then murdered him. We all knew what we were doing. We used the law to kill him. It sounds like a conspiracy. It sounds like that guy got a social conscience. Sounds like the uh, false values fell flat. You know, it was actually overturned by New York in 2003. I mean, that's something, I guess. But all this was based on the Supreme Court obscenity case, which still is used today. Roth versus the United States, which was from 1957. And Justice William Brennan was very two-sided when he wrote it. And in a way, it kind of made every ha- everybody happy because the free speech absolutists took comfort in Brennan's statement that any work containing even the slightest meaningful content was protected by the First Amendment. But conservatives celebrated the decision's explicit declaration that obscene speech, being essentially worthless, was not protected. And they cheered the justice's affirmation of, quote, the social interest in order and morality. But so it established that famous formula of whether to the average person applying contemporary community standards, the dominant theme of the material as a whole appeals to the prurient interest. I so much prefer the Clarence Thomas, like, I don't know how to define it, but I know it when I see it. Yeah, that's exactly what this is. It's like, I know it when I see it. I just need to compare it to the other standards, which is very gray. That's why we have SCOTUS, right? Sure. We have SCOTUS for gray. Now, Lenny Bruce said, Take away the right to say fuck, 
and you take away the right to say fuck the government. Fuck that. <laughs> now, whenever he was arrested, the first time, another man was at his show and was arrested as well. Why was he arrested? Well, they asked for his ID, and he said no, and he told them that he did not believe in government-issued identification, and he did not agree with the government. Oh, I have a guess. <laughs> I have a wild guess. Well, so it was George Carlin. That was my guess. <laughs> so George Carlin actually shared a ride with Lenny Bruce in the back of a police car to the police station. Oh, to be a fly in that San Francisco paddy wagon. <laughs> Well, and so before this event, Carlin was a fairly successful comedian, and he was very traditional, and he had tight cropped hair, and he wore suits, and he was on The Tonight Show, and told jokes. Cute. What the hell? It's like seeing Willie Nelson before he had long hair. It's so wrong. kind of looks like it. <laughs> it's so wrong. Because all men looks like that at that time. <laughs> Okay, so when do we get good George? When do we get After George? This. Okay, so this is his this moment. Is the this transformation. is the knockdown on the road to Damascus moment. Yes, Lenny Bruce. Ah. And he saw the light, and then he went on and preached the gospel. I had this new look, new attitude, and his philosophy of I think it's the duty of the comedian to find out where the line is drawn and cross it deliberately. <laughs> we want a t shirt. He said, Lenny Bruce opened the door for all the guys like me. He prefigured the free speech movement and helped push the culture forward into the light of open and honest expression. Now, 10 years later, in 1972, he was arrested. George? George Carlin at Milwaukee Summerfest for performing his seven words you can never say on television. Are you going to say them? Because we're not on television. <laughs> oh, sure. I love it. It's, it's fantastic. I love George Carlin. They called them bad words, dirty, filthy, foul, vile, vulgar, coarse, and poor taste, unseemly, street talk, gutter talk, locker room language, barracks talk, body, naughty, saucy, raunchy, rude, crude, lewd, lascivious, indecent, profane, obscene, blue, off-color, risque, suggestive, cursing, cussing, swearing, and all I could think of was shit, piss, fuck, cunt, cocksucker, motherfucker, and tits. I have to say that... Watching him perform whenever he did it, I was always struck by the level of memorization. I mean, because it's not haphazard. His comedy is not put together in a in a way that lends to like on the fly rearranging or I missed something. I need to go back. It's delivered like poetry. It's not poetry. I'm not saying that, but it's delivered. Like, you could say it is. It's it's, I mean, I guess fine. it is, but, you know, it's delivered in a way where it's like a two-hour set, completely beginning to end, memorized and performed, and it just the power of mind that that takes. I could memorize two hours worth of material, not like that, not perfectly. I'm always sort of amazed. But yes, the seven words you can't say on television, the words that are always dirty, Always offensive. Let me guess. Wait, people were offended. They were. But actually, the case was dismissed. Oh, okay, well. You know, the court declared that the language wasn't decent, but Carlin had the freedom to use it as long as he caused no disturbance. Okay. Later he said, I find it kind of funny to be hassled for using them when my intention is to free us from hassling people for using them. <laughs> so on October 3rd of 1973... 
At around two o'clock, John H. Douglas was driving home with his sweet boy child, and they were listening to the radio station WBAI, and the station played Carlin's Seven Words You Can Never Say on Television. Douglas became incensed, and he wrote to the SEC and was outraged and demanded an investigation. He said, I heard, among other obscenities, the following words. Listing them. No, he did not. Yeah. And a whole host of others. This was supposed to be part of a comedy monologue. Whereas I can perhaps understand an X-rated phonograph record being sold for private use, I certainly cannot understand the broadcast of same over the air that supposedly you control. Any child could have been turning the dial and tuned it to that garbage. Okay, when was, like, do you know the time of day it was broadcast? Two o'clock. So it was kind of in the middle of the afternoon. Right, but a little more background on this. Now, Douglas was actually a CBS executive. Oh. And he was a member of a pornography watch group called Morality in Media. So he was very addicted to pornography, is what you're telling me. Most likely. He had a shoebox a mile long. And his young son that he... Yeah, the sweet kid that heard all these dirty... Okay, you know, he was saying all the dirty words already. Exactly. (laughs) And he had turned into the WBAI lunch panel afternoon program, which before they warned listeners that Carlin's filthy word bit would have language that could be deemed as offensive. But he Mm -hmm. kept it on. And of course, he's the only person that complained about this. Huh. He later said, he was the funniest comedian of his generation. (laughs) I didn't turn him in. I was turning in WBAI. That's what we call irony. And it is a humorous device. I mean, it wasn't like a true complaint. You know, it wasn't like a, a true, like, worried listener. It was someone that was looking for it. Right. And I get, like, I mean, maybe commercial radio stations that are on FM should not play seven dirty words or seven words you can't say on television at two o'clock in the afternoon. Maybe. Well, I mean, the Supreme Court would probably agree with you. So this actually did go to the Supreme Court. This particular thing? This particular case. The SEC did open an investigation, which they always open an investigation for any complaint every time you see... Stephen Colbert investigated, blah, 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 investigated. But see, everyone is investigated every single time that a complaint is filed. So an investigation does not mean anything. I feel like that the more you know, star just yeah. passed in front of it's my important. eyes. But Pacifica, the radio station owner, responded to the FCC's sanctions saying, George Carlin is a significant social satirist of American manners and language in the tradition of Mark Twain and Mort Saul. Carlin, like Twain and Saul before him, examines the language of ordinary people. In the selection broadcast from his album, he shows us that words which most people use at one time or another cannot be threatening or obscene. Carlin is not mouthing obscenities. He's merely using words to satirize as harmless and essentially silly our attitudes towards those words. So this case boils down to one bare question. Does the First Amendment deny government any power to restrict the public broadcast of indecent language under any circumstances? And the answer was, no, of course we can restrict things. Oh, good, good, good. I'm so glad we all agree on that. But now, instead of words just having to be obscene, this altered things from that earlier decision we talked about to where now you could take other things into account. You could take time you can take audience 
could take medium, you could take method of transmission, and that could all be factored in. So do you think I would have a valid complaint if I wrote in about the Doc McStuffins episode where the monkey has ED? The monkey has ED. There's definitely an STD, like, allegory. Yeah, they get the disease from hugging on a different episode. Mm -mm. Don't watch that. Don't let your kids watch that. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, the monkey's Velcro falls off and he can't hug anymore. And he's worried that his partner won't be satisfied with him. Yeah. It's a very thinly veiled metaphor. Here's the thing. If you write a letter in. They'll have to investigate it? Yes. Should I? Doc McStuffins will be investigated. By the FCC. No, it's so positive, though. It's the largely positive program. No, I'm joking. But it's still true. You could do that. I kind of want to. So the court wrote, When the commission finds that a pig has entered the parlor, the exercise of its regulatory power does not depend on proof that the pig is obscene. That's amazing. (laughs) Right? But it's another, it's just the continual rephrasing of like, we know it when we see it. We know a pig when we see it. I know ED when I see it in a children's (laughs) program. It's there. Watch it. But of course, this really brought about a lot of concerns about censorship, and it still does. This case is still cited. It was cited in the FCC versus Fox case, where they upheld fleeting expletives. Oh, yes. That's the most recent case to kind of bring this up in the Supreme Court. Because really, nobody gives a fuck. That's the Supreme Court's official position on profanity these days, is we don't give a fuck. So, of course, Colin has gone down as one of the greatest satirists since Mark Twain, and he was named for the Mark Twain Prize for American Humor, and in November 2008, he was the first posthumous recipient of the award. And earlier, Carlin was talking about how Bruce kind of opened the door for him. Lewis Black, talking about George Carlin, said, he kind of took the door that Bruce opened and basically put a door jam in it. And he cites Carlin as one of his prime influences in that profanity allows comedy to go further. For me, he provided a comfort zone. That's oddly sweet from Lewis Black. I love Lewis Black because he can be sincere. So we're going to talk about the generation of offensive comedians. We really can't do so without discussing Richard Pryor, at least a little bit. So Richard Pryor remains one of the most influential comedians in history. By using his own life experiences, he brought light to issues like poverty, racism, and drug abuse, all while paving the way for African-American comedians. Now, Pryor is sort of famous for poking touchy or taboo subjects and seeing what happens. Race and gender were among some of the ones that he brought up over and over again. He probably reached the peak of his stand-up prowess in the 1970s and it was this weird mixture of honestly funny laugh out loud can't help yourself kind of humor and this very real sense of suffering and pain and he's credited as a genius he's credited as a trailblazer but some people still say despite everything he contributed to mass media and pop culture that he promoted racism I think that's a stretch. I do too. Because he was even conflicted about it. He was conflicted about like saying certain words uh, and things like that. But he also wanted to do that to to take it back. Literally, he said he wanted to detoxify things. Right. And he was also really fond of using the word bitch. Like it just kind of fell out of his mouth. And so, of course, he's accused of promoting sexism, which is kind of a stretch. I'll say it. But whatever. People have their feelings. 
all over the place. They have their feelings. No, giving offense, causing people to be uncomfortable and to laugh in their discomfort and kind of that nervous laugh. Nervous laugh was his sweet spot. That was kind of the core of his genius. I didn't realize how kind of bleak his early circumstances were. He was born in Peoria, Illinois in 1940. He literally grew up in a brothel. The matriarch was his grandmother, a madam who looked after a bevy of sex workers. She could be very stern, but she was also very affectionate to him. Now, his father was a pimp. And his biological mother and stepmother were sex workers. And one of his uncles was a drug runner and a counterfeiter. There are also reports that he was abused by his father and sexually abused by a neighbor. Comedy served as a release from this very, very bleak childhood. Now, initially, as he was working the Chitlin circuit, do you want to explain what the Chitlin circuit is? Uh. (laughs) Maybe explain what a Chitlin is. No, I mean, it is the, it's just the black circuit. Right. Yeah. Just like nowadays, like Tyler Perry used to tour his shows on the Chitlin circuit. It would go to larger African-American communities because that was their audience. Right. Now, during the time that he was working the Chitlin circuit, he had kind of modeled himself after, and this is funny, Bill Cosby. Aww. Right. This upstanding, just goobity-goo, funny. White people love. Affable, easy, palatable comedian. Now, Variety described Pryor as belonging to the, quote, Cosby School of Reminiscing, an identifiable storytelling. And Pryor himself sheepishly confessed, for about one year, I was Bill Cosby. (laughs) Now, he was encouraged by the Black Power movement and sort of dissatisfied with this kind of inauthentic Cosby-esque identity that he had been cultivating. And he wanted to speak out about the, quote, backside of life. And his biographer Saul shrewdly notes, for Pryor, life itself was unclean and profane. He couldn't be clean and true to the characters he wished to portray. Now, Pryor's best work can sort of be seen as making a wider swath of America aware of marginalized voices. His biographer writes, An unvarnished portrait of the black communities, chippies, hustlers, jackleg preachers, and winos. He took his audience to the inner sanctums of the black experience, the members-only, all-night clubs, the storefront churches and barbershops, and captured the human variety he found there, channeling voice after voice with ease that suggested there was no limit to their number. Pryor became the anti-Cosby. In discussing the kind of the differences that eventually showed up between Pryor and Cosby. One of the things that they can be picked out is the way in which they relate to the audience. Cosby asked the audience to laugh with him, right? He is complicit. He is letting you in on this. He's letting you kind of go along with his line of thinking. He's kind of the master of his own destiny when he's on stage telling a story. Not so much in a courtroom, but that's for another day. Pryor, on the other hand, has a very different way of relating to the audience. And it's this shaky trust that he establishes. Like, I'm going to let you in on a secret. He sort of has this way of letting the audience become part of this like fleeting moment of trust. Like, here, let me take you to my place. Let me bring you into my world and I'll show you, but I don't know if you're going to like it. And I think that the word that 
I've seen written about it that I really do like is vulnerability. He has a certain vulnerability in his comedy. He's always like a little hesitant to let down his guard, but he does. You know, he has, and that's the trick of his of his act is like making you think that he is going to stop short of revealing whatever secret he's been leading up to, and then kicking it, like kicking that expectation out, and that's where that you know absurdist results that we were talking about that pattern recognition, the breaking down of patterns. That's where it works with him. Because it's like he seems defensive, seems defensive, seems defensive, and then suddenly he's the butt of his own joke. You're in his world. He's telling you the secret. And that's something that's very different and reflects very differently on him. He was much maligned for the language that he used. And some people said that he encouraged derogatory speech to both African Americans and women. But there was a power in doing that. He said that he said awful things, but he just said true things that were kind of necessary for other people to hear and made those awful things part of a national discussion that desperately needed to happen. And you can see that, you know, he opened up the entire, you know, black comedian Def Jam circuit, you know, opened that up to wider audiences Without him, you would not have some of the amazing black comedians that we have now. And without all of these guys and so many others changing the way jokes are told and changing the topics, you wouldn't have what we call you know, modern comedy today. Right. So that's sort of the super short history of how comedy happened on a massive scale on a large national media scale but on a more personal level like in a in a like give me your best medical opinion doc kind of level why do we tell jokes that is a question that has been asked forever and ever and no one really has the answer but there are a lot of good ideas what are you gonna tell me that scholars argue the next thing you know i know you're gonna tell me that scholars debate the next thing i'm gonna tell you is freud says oh that's better let's talk about freud so this is probably one of the things Freud talked about, that he was closest to kind of right. Because we know he's a wackadoodle. We love that wackadoodle, how brainy he was. But this brainy Freud always just has these little nuggets of truth in his crazy theories. And so... Freud nuggets coming soon to a Just a Story merch shop near you. Get your mom to heat some up for lunch today. Mommy, these nuggets are terrible. You ruined my life. You stupid cow. But Freud hypothesized that joking serves a psychological function of avoiding both internal and external obstacles. So internal obstacles such as inhibitions like shame or fear. So joking about death or sex or excrement or race or religion releases psychic tension mm-hmm. through laughter. Mm-hmm. It's an end around that super ego. So this is our sort of industrial loop around the super ego. Yes. Okay. And then you have those external obstacles. And those are the powers beyond our control. So that can include some of those things, but also you can include like the government. Mm, fuck the government. Lenny Bruce, said I, Lenny Bruce said I could. He's a martyr on the altar of free speech, man. Well, he is considered a martyr. So... This idea definitely, again, has like a little negative truth. Humor helps us relieve anxiety. It's definitely one of its big functions. 
You know, Victor Frankl described concentration camp prisoners who cracked jokes about their horrible circumstances, saying, Humor was another of the soul's weapons in the fight for self-preservation. It's well known that humor, more than anything else in the human makeup, can afford an aloofness and an ability to rise above any situation, even if only for a few seconds. And there's even another case of this U.S. pilot that was shot down during Vietnam, the Nanzi. And while he was in the POW camp, he decided that he had a fake motorcycle. And he also had a pet monkey named Barney. I want a pet monkey named Barney. And he would, like, you know, entertain the other guys, the other prisoners, by, like, riding his motorcycle around and making noises. And he'd, you know, peel out and fall off his bike. And and his chimp Barney would jump around. And I swear to God I've heard John McCain talk about this. You may have. I this swear is a very to, famous story. But I think he was there. So the guards sometimes would play along with it. No! <laughs> and, like, he'd be interrogated. And the chimp barney would say something derogatory but only only to venanzi and he would laugh and they would ask what he said and then mm-hmm. he was able to tell it through this and eventually he was told he had to stop acting like he had a motorcycle because it was making the other prisoners jealous no he was not that's so funny but they could have motorcycles too they could have a purple one which is what my two-year-old says every time or my three-year-old she just had a birthday my three-year-old says every time she sees a motorcycle i want a purple one but he was even decorated for this and for kind of keeping the morale of the troops up while they were in these dire circumstances. So without a doubt, humor can definitely provide some relief from anxiety. But in this way, jokes have to kind of make us a little uneasy. They have to have a little absurd quality to them. They have to have some kind of incongruity. To be humorous. With our expectations, right? Yes. They must count our expectation. Exactly. And so one other researcher, Ted Cohen, said that jokes can also be used for connection. You know, they can help reinforce community. They can also acknowledge and integrate these painful absurdities that a group can be going through together. He said, when we laugh at true absurdity, we simultaneously confess that we cannot make sense of it and that we accept it. Thus, laughter is an expression of our humanity, our finite capacity, our ability to live with what we cannot understand or subdue. We can deal within the incomprehensible without dying from fear or going mad. It sounds like a very elevated version of you've got to either laugh or cry. Like Some response is demanded by your external circumstances. You must respond to it in some way, and laughter is a way you can respond when there's no action you can take, when you're stifled. Right, and it's socially acceptable. Mostly. Mostly. I think about like every joke I've ever made in my mother's presence, which begins with Samantha. But then she giggles. Yeah. (laughs) And it's acceptable because joke can also be used as a rhetoric. You can joke up where the idea that's okay for like a less powerful person to make fun of a more powerful individual or group. Now, the reverse is usually less accepted. True. Now... Freud points out the dangers of humor as a form of rhetoric, saying, While argument tries to draw the hearer's criticism over onto its side, the joke endeavors to push the criticism out of sight. There is no doubt the joke has chosen the method, which is psychologically the more effective. So instead of an argument remaining in the realm of, I don't know, let's say facts, a joke can just obliterate the field of play. 
Right. If I say a joke you think is like a little offensive, then you can say like, hey, but that's not right now. Man, it's just a joke. Chill out. So using a joke in a debate is the equivalent of knocking over the chessboard. Yeah, it doesn't even have to be in a debate. You know, it could be seen as you're saying something and, and you want to debate it and you can't. It's like, man, it's just a joke. Yeah, like I said, it's like knocking over the chessboard. Like you have two people who might sit down to play a game, right? And you're competing forces back and forth. Everyone's playing the rules and staying in their lane. And then a joke effectively just comes over and throws the whole thing on the ground and says, it was just a game. Anyway, it doesn't matter. It's just a joke. Don't get so uptight. Jeez. But humor is a way for us to deal with these hard ideas. As Mayor Hirsch said, humor is a rubber sword. It allows you to make a point without drawing blood. And George Saunders, who's a fantastic writer, was writing about Kurt Vonnegut in Slaughterhouse-Five, and he said, Humor is what happens when we're told the truth quicker and more directly than we're used to. The comic is the truth stripped of the habitual, the cushioning, the easy consolation. It's a way we can deal with complex and contradictory messages. Laughter is kind of what is happening when we're working through those details. It's a way to communicate like sensitive and subtle ideas. And this especially can be seen in what can be called gallows humor or sick humor. So gallows humor is like dark humor, joking about dark things, fatalistic, nihilistic sort of death. I mean, it's basically kind of what we do on the show. Yeah. Big fans of gallows humor. Yeah. But it treats serious, frightening, painful subject matters in a light or satirical way. Which is the only way as mature adults that we've come to know to discuss 97% of the things that we try to broach with you. But these jokes are not necessarily meant to offend, while some can, of course, but just in a general sense, not all gallows humor is meant to be offensive. It challenges accepted norms. It makes us laugh, not despite its depravity, but because of it. And there's some really interesting joke cycles that explore this idea. What is a joke cycle? Is it like a unicycle? Like a bear on a unicycle? Yes. That's a joke. Cuh. Cuh. But a joke cycle is a group of jokes that have a recognizable theme. And so these cycles can have varying durations depending on kind of what they're about and their function. Now, over the years, as our humor has changed, as we've talked about it, joke cycles have proliferated. And we've seen a substantial rise in obscene, sick, gallows humor joke cycles. No. <laughs> when we talked about doing this episode on jokes i said oh good we can do dead baby jokes now i want to make it perfectly clear that i had never heard of dead baby jokes until i was sitting in a folklore class that's because you were never a fifth grade boy i just like i don't i still like don't like them i don't think any adult likes them i don't think anyone actually likes them no but when you're a kid it's just one more way to just get a rise out of people. Right. And that is the thing about dead baby jokes. They're definitely spun out in a like one-upsmanship game, gambit, if you will, usually involving adolescents. And they were most popular in the 1960s and early 70s. Alan Dundies wrote extensively on dead baby jokes. I bet he was fun at dinner parties. I bet he was too. Just a riot, that fellow. 
between the Freud and the dead babies, I mean, who wouldn't want to hang out with Alan? Now, before I tell you some dead baby jokes, and I'm going to, I think we should discuss the heritage, if not the history, of humor surrounding murder and children. Fantastic. So, in the 1900s through the 1930s, the Little Willie quatrains were very popular. And some suspect that this trend may be linked to a poet named Harry Graham, who was English. And in 1899, he penned a book called Ruthless Rhymes for Heartless Holmes. That sounds so modern. I know. Now, his verses featured a character called Little Billy. Billy in one of his nice new sashes fell in the fire and burnt to ashes. Now, although the room grows chilly, I haven't the heart to poke poor Billy. Oh, that's a sweet nursery rhyme. Isn't it? So somehow in folk translation, eventually Billy became Willie. Willie's a funnier name. Willie's funnier. Yeah, I'm just going to go ahead and say that. Some of the little Willie poems were, Willie poisoned father's tea. Father died in agony. Mother came and looked quite vexed. Really, Will, she said, what's next? And another, little Willie hung his sister. She was dead before we missed her. Willie's always up to tricks. Ain't he cute? He's only six. Oh, good. So usually Willie is up to no good, murdering parents and or siblings. And to this day, when you say something gives you the willies, if you say that, if you're that cool. I'm that cool. I am. It gives me the willies. You are referring to the little Willie Quatrains. That's crazy. So he definitely has a firm place in our linguistic history. Well, that definitely went into these like cruel jokes that cycled in the 50s that kind of flipped it on its head where the mother or the family were being in the same way. Like they were killing people and being abusive and hurting father and killing children and poisoning them, etc. All in good fun. All in good fun. Look, it's the American dream, people. It's fine. We're fine. Well, no, that's fine. exactly it. It's it's poking fun at the American dream. It's poking fun at the nuclear family. That was the entire focus of the 50s. Is it is it blowing up the nuclear family? No. No, it's not. You're right. That'd be silly. So as I was reading over some of the later verses from More Ruthless Rhymes for Heartless Homes, which was published in 1930, I noticed that something about... The poem seems to give way to the sort of tension within the family. It becomes a little more apparent. It, a little, yeah, a little bit. So this is L'Enfant Glossé. L'Enfant Glossé. Je veux fou l'enfant. Je veux fou bleu. When baby's cries grew hard to bear, I popped him in the frigidaire. I would never have done so if I knew he'd be frozen stiff. My wife said, George, I'm so unhappy. Our darling's now completely frappe. No, that's so terrible. Isn't it? And then this one also. So Willie split the baby's head to see if brains were gray or red. Mother, troubled, said to father, children are an awful bother. You know, they just went around the schoolyard like fire. Oh, absolutely. But looking at this, like this line, George, I'm so unhappy. I thought that was really interesting. And then children are an awful bother. There's something about it that sort of belies a truth in these really silly things, like that you can be unhappy or think children are bothersome, which is socially unacceptable to say in 1930. But this is a way that you can address it in this right. sick, silly joke. Yeah. 
Sick, silly way. So eventually the Little Willie Quatrains give rise to the good news, bad news jokes. Now, I like a good good news, bad news joke. A lot of them take place in medical facilities because the doctor often comes in to give you news, right? This is a person who's commonly telling you your fate. You've put your, your fate in the hands of the trusted man in the white coat and he's here to save the day. Well, it's also somewhere where you don't talk about the bad news you get. You know, that's something that is not, especially at this time, discussed openly. Right. And so here's one. A man goes for a checkup and the doctor examined him, says, I have bad news and worse news. Tell me the bad news. The bad news is you have one month to live. Oh my God, what's the worst news? It's February. But um, Right? Mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. And then there's also this one. A man who was in an automobile accident wakes up in a hospital bed and asks the doctor how he is. Well, I have bad news and good news. What's the bad news? The bad news is we had to amputate both your legs. The good news is there's a man in the next bed who wants to buy your shoes. Aww. But then we start seeing the appearance of dead babies in the good news, bad news. So a doctor enters the maternity ward with a baby and he slings it around several times and finally throws it against the wall and it goes splat. And the mother screams, oh, doctor, doctor, that was my baby. And the doctor replies, oh, don't worry. It was dead anyway. (laughs) So the good news, bad news jokes give way to the true dead baby jokes. And these are mostly traded, as I said, among adolescents and kind of a game of one-upsmanship. And, buyer beware, they're gross. So, I'm going to tell you some jokes, and you have to respond accordingly. What is red and sits in a corner? A dead baby. A baby chewing razor blades. No. What's green and sits in a corner? What? The same baby two weeks later. This is not funny. It's not funny. What's red and swings? A dead baby. A baby on a meat hook. Oh. What's red and green, red and green? What? A baby going through a lawnmower. No. What's more disgusting than a truckload of dead babies? Nothing. A truckload of dead babies with one live baby eating his way out. No, okay. This is, that's, okay, one more. (laughs) How did the dead baby cross the road? How? He was stapled to a chicken. No, no. So I don't think these are funny. I've told you I don't think these are funny. So why are these going around? I mean, obviously there's the children's thing. I mean, children are trying to be as gross as they can, trying to one-up each other. I mean, even Freud commented that the thought which the intention of constructing a joke plunges into the unconscious is merely seeking there for the ancient dwelling place of its former play with words though it's put back for a moment to the stage of childhood, so it wants more to gain possession of the childish source of pleasure. Is that all this is? Are we getting this childish pleasure from being just gross? Well, maybe. Probably. I, yeah, I think this is just gross-out humor, and he who can be the grossest wins, and that's just something that every fifth grader experiences. But Dundee's has other opinions, as Dundee's is wont to do. He suggests that this might have something to do with sibling rivalry, that we hate the little sister, we hate the brother, whatever. And the mother. The mother, yeah. And then he also suggests that the timing of this might have something to do with sort of the visual reporting that's coming home from Vietnam, that we're seeing so much carnage that we need a way to make light of it. 
And the most horrific of all the tragedies are the innocents that are killed in this conflict. And so by making fun of them, we're allowing ourselves to deal with the horrific idea that babies are being killed in this war. So that's one thought. And then he also says that another major cultural shift that's going on at the time is the fight for the legalization of abortion. And that this is probably having an effect on the discourse surrounding the humanity of children. When is a baby a baby? I mean, I think it's valid. I do too. But then he goes on to say... Oh, God. He goes on to say that it's about questioning the purpose of sexuality. Because more people can have more sex, like because there are better contraceptives that are more widely available. More people can have more sex that does not result in children. And therefore, this debate about the purpose of sexuality has come to a higher level of visibility, even among teenagers. And this is a way that we're sort of debating what sex is for. I mean, I see some validity there. I, like, Dundee's is always that way. I can always see what he's saying if I squint. That's why he's a Freudian folklorist. Right, Because right. just like Freud, if you squint... There's a Freud nugget. Yeah. And so I think that's like, that's the bigger debate going around the ideas of abortion. Right. And the ideas of changing sexuality. And it's probably more the superficial things that the younger kids are grasping onto. Oh, like, oh, if you have an abortion, they cut the baby up and they throw it away. And they're, 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 like, yeah. yeah the scare exactly. tactics That's that are going. catching on. And they hear yeah. that there's scare tactics and latch on to it and they make fun of it. Because how else do you deal with the idea? I mean, just think of it out of context. Like, as a 10-year-old. Just think about ten context. You're 10. They take the baby and they cut it up. Like, how do you deal with that anxiety that that provokes? That thought? You barely know where babies come from. You don't. In 1970, you probably, probably don't. don't. And it's like, oh, I don't know where babies come from even. I barely know what sex is. They're saying they're ripping babies out and chopping them up into little pieces. What do I do with that extreme anxiety that causes? Make fun of it. That's how you relieve that tension. I, I buy that argument more than a lot of the other ones he puts forward. This one I just have to share because it is, it's gold. This was published in 1979, and I love it for being published in 1979. Dundee says, Women's liberation ideology may have also contributed by insisting that women's place was not necessarily in the home and that motherhood was not the only career option open to women. More and more, babies were perceived as perfidious male plots to keep women subjugated. Keep them barefoot and pregnant in the kitchen is a folk dictum expressing this male chauvinistic point of view. For women to be liberated, they needed to keep from getting pregnant. Or, if they become pregnant, they may want to consider abortion as a means of retaining their newly found freedom. But a price is paid for contraception and abortion. That price includes the guilt of preventing the creation of or destroying a potential human being. He blames the mother. He didn't blame the mother. Maybe oh, he, he did. He, yes, did. he did. He did. He did. Reread it. No, I've read it a few times and I go back and forth, like whether he's saying like this crazy idea that the woman does not necessarily need to stay in the home. I can't decide his tone here. I think it's patronizing. And I say down with the patriarchy. And I, I think this is, a, this is a misread too. Because he's saying that like this is sort of the effort to dehumanize the the baby, dehumanize the baby by making it an object of a joke, and he's kind of putting that off on these women who want nothing to do with babies. 
these women are not the ones making the jokes. They're not the ones making the jokes. If anything, this is a comment on the women who choose not to have children. It is not a comment by the women on how funny it is that they're not choosing to have children. Yeah, I mean, I definitely see that. I really think it's most likely related to anxieties. Right. Induced by just the ideas, where the jokes travel. Yeah. Yeah considering where they're told and how they're told and all those things. And he also, you know, cites the high rates of uh, broken homes. That was a major concern. We've all seen movies from the 1980s. We know that the broken home and or the workaholic father were necessary components of every family movie. But one idea he does put forward at the end that I think is super interesting, and it might have something to do with why these jokes became popular in groups that were not just 10-year-old boys is this idea of extended adolescence that the country is really buying into at this time and tensions over Cold War-era conflicts. And you have a generation of people who have not been exposed to any major war in the way that they're, the generation before them was. You know, like in the 60s and 70s, people went to Vietnam. In the 80s, you watched MTV. It's what you did. And you also have a group of people who are permitted to engage in sex because of access to contraceptives, etc., and told that they're not ready to settle down. We put off marriage, childbearing, family, adulthood, all of those things a little bit longer now. And so there's this awkward phase of existence where you are biologically ready to enter the sphere of adulthood and do the things that adults do, but you are barred from fully participating in the cultural patterns that would code one as an adult and so these cycles escalate from being shared by you know tweens and teens to being shared by young adults and there's something about that that rings very true to me something about this idea of extended adolescence and the anxiety that it causes and I think that that may be the reason we see the rise of popular humor, popular humorist in this era is because there have been so many conflicts and so much commentary was needed and we so needed someone to be a voice against the establishment. And now we're sort of idling away in pop culture and the appeal of so many comedians began to be their youthful exuberance and the way that they played with this extended adolescent period and extended adolescent fantasies. This is where SNL becomes a huge thing. This is where you get Caddyshack and all those kind of, you know, those Steve Martin movies. <laughs> yeah, kind of more slapstick humor. And eventually Adam Sandler, the great man child, comes to reign supreme. One Definitely the king of that. One man child to rule them all. <laughs> oh God, please no. He and Will Ferrell are going to fight for it somewhere. It's happening. <laughs> Will Ferrell will win. I know. I know that. And I definitely agree with that. And, you know, more sick joke cycles do come about as our society is changing, as media coverage of things is changing. And you cited uh, Vietnam mm-hmm. and the gore seen from there. And that's very frequently cited as a cause for the rise of these kind of sick and gallows humor joke cycles. And one interesting one that... I really had never heard of before was the NASA joke cycle. NASA like NASA like space? Yeah. Okay. So 73 seconds after the 
takeoff on January 28th of 1986, the shuttle Challenger exploded. And this was a great national tragedy, and rightfully so. Reagan's speech in the wake of this was actually really brilliant. Well, NASA at this time was still this kind of unsullied American institution. It still embodied just like that American dream, American ideals, hard work, science, innovation, American apple pie, etc. American exceptionalism. Yes, it really was. Mm -hmm. They were known for winning. They won everything. So much winning, you're going to be sick of it. Yes. And this was a big failure. Yes. Although no one ever cites Apollo 1 (laughs) when I read any of these papers. But anyway. What happened to Apollo 1? It exploded on the launch pad. That's a failure, too. So this was considered NASA's big failure. It shocked the public. And it was made even worse because every kid in every school was tuned in to no. watch the launch. Yeah. Because I... this had been, you don't remember it because it was like the year we were born. <laughs> it had been lauded as this huge media push because Krista McAuliffe, a school teacher was going to be sent into space. Right. I remember my kindergarten teacher told us about this. And, like, I remember being horrified. Now, why she chose to tell us about this, I'm not sure. But she was like, she was a teacher and she was going to go to space and she exploded, basically. And my little five-year-old self was like, <laughs> holy fuck. But, you know, you talked about Reagan's response and it was a very appropriate response. And he immediately was like, we're going to keep going. We're going to keep this going. We're not going to stop because of this. It's just, we're sad about this. These were great American heroes, and they were, but we are going to continue on with our quest. And the media kind of reacted in unity, as you see in many disaster events. Instead of kind of probing into it, who screwed up? What was the problem? Of course, that did exist, but most people were kind of unified and supporting it and trying to kind of move past it in a way there was a great show of solidarity in the media but nicholas van hoffman was writing about this in the new republic and he said within minutes of krista mccall's death the mass media began moving past the workaday idiocies of pack journalism they left behind ordinary new pathos and took up as the voice of the unitary society, as rather Jennings and Brokaw sat in their anchor seats and fingered their space phalluses, those stand-tall model reproductions of the good ship Challenger, whatever skepticism they may have once brought to their work vanished. They pledged to carry on the mission of the seven heroes, now gone to the red, white, and blue Valhalla, where America's freedom fighters from Bunker Hill to Cape Canaveral sleep in glory. Jesus Christ, the cynicism is thick with that one it's extremely thick and he's, he's making a joke about it but he was not the only person kind of making light of this within days jokes were circulating sam what does nasa stand for national aeronautics and yeah <laughs> what else need another seven astronauts no shut up it's terrible so of course these jokes were considered off limits by the media and even a dj in la was fired for wisecracking that the rocket ship Challenger blew up because the crew was freebasing Tang. That's were, funny and awful. It's funny and awful, and I hate it for making me laugh. Now, in research into this, 41 complete NASA jokes are recorded from all kinds of people and all across the world. There's an interesting component of this cycle is that it has two parts. They're the NASA jokes, 
but there are also teacher jokes. Ew. So, some choice NASA jokes. Of course, there's the freebasing joke, which made fun of NASA's, you know, perfect, clean image, Boy Scout astronauts. Mm-hmm. And there's also fears that, like, the whole program would be shuttered. Even Reagan immediately was like, no, we're not going to do it. Like, right. Everyone was worried about that. And fears of just this throwaway society and heroes can easily be replaced. So, And, of course, joking about media coverage. Here's one. Did you hear ABC is doing a 90-second miniseries on the space shuttle flight? And here's a throwback to our dead baby jokes. What's worse than glass and baby food? I don't know. Astronauts in tuna. These jokes are like a folk commentary. It's angry. It's vicious. It's sick. It, but it's a counterpoint to the piety that the media is putting out. This is a loss of another great American establishment. And then you have the teacher jokes. I have a feeling these are going to be much more offensive. Well, you know, Kristen McAuliffe was selected after a national search, and this was extremely highly publicized. And one of the reasons they did this was that at the time, and it's still going on, there was a huge national debate about the failure of the public education system. Mm. And so put all of this together, and you get some jokes. What did Krista McAuliffe say to her students? I'll be back in a flash. No, no, she didn't say that. How do you know that Krista McAuliffe was a good teacher? I don't know. She only blew up in front of her students once. What did the bumper sticker say on the piece of salvaged Challenger fuselage? What did it say? If you can read this, thank a teacher. Ah. So obviously, you know, this... Oh, wait, wait, wait. I have one. I have one. You want to hear it? You're going to make one up? No, I read this one earlier. What color were Krista McCullough's eyes? What? Blue. One blue that way, one blue that way. No. These are terrible. These jokes are terrible. They make me feel bad. Especially the NASA jokes were told among older people, you know, adults. And the teacher jokes told more about kids. And, you know, like we were talking about the dead baby jokes... And that, like, just national conversation about abortion that they couldn't fully understand. There was this national conversation about education that kids couldn't understand. The one part they could understand was their shitty teachers. (laughs) (laughs) And so they were going to lash out at them, and this is the perfect excuse to do that. You know, interesting thing about these jokes is that both the teller and the listener sometimes feel the need to apologize for the joke. Yeah, like we just did. Right. Instead of saying, like, oh, that's funny, you say, oh, that's terrible. (laughs) But you still tell the joke. And you still laugh. But it shows there's still some anxiety left over. It still does not completely believe that tension. That's interesting. So joke cycles like this are not unique to dead babies or the Challenger. One of the first major joke cycles that had the sort of sick humor twist to it was JFK's assassination. And again, you can see that that was something that was obviously highly publicized by medium, continuously commented upon that everyone was aware of. And you can see these humor cycles come out of basically every major crisis. Since then, there's a huge AIDS joke cycle that went around, which I didn't even look into because it sounds utterly depressing. There were nine 11 jokes before it was cool. Lots of jokes about the Gulf War, the war in Iraq, etc., etc. And they serve a purpose, certainly. But Gallo's humor 
is not relegated to a joke cycle. It's something that always exists. It's just commenting on uncomfortable things. It's commenting on things that make us anxious directly in a way that sort of challenges our sense of normality. And we like that. We like to use gallows humor. It's something that we subscribe to often (laughs) and employ often. And I think one place where it's almost necessary to cope is in the field of medicine. Oh boy, is it. There has been so much writing about gallows humor in medicine. And of course, I find it very interesting as being one that has used it and been heard it and has been part of that cycle. But it's interesting because, like you said, it's, it's a very high anxiety situation. And so it's something you see very often. So Hippocrates... I've heard of him. Even said, physicians should cultivate a serious and respectable image. But at the same time, he advised that they use wit in interacting with their patients because dourness is repulsive, both to the healthy and to the sick. (laughs) He's so true. So physicians have never, even if they're shown on TV as very serious, have never truly been a very serious bunch because we can't be. (laughs) It's repulsive. But here's an example of gallows humor that I thought was fantastic. It's 3 a.m. Three tired emergency room residents were wondering why their pizza they ordered hadn't come yet. A nurse interrupted their complaints with a shout, gunshot wound, trauma one, no pulse, no blood pressure. The residents rushed to meet the gurney and immediately recognized the unconscious shooting victim. He was the delivery boy from their favorite all-night restaurant, and he'd been mugged bringing them their pizza. This made them work even harder. A surgeon cracked the kid's rib cage, exposed his heart, but the bullet had torn it open, and they couldn't even stabilize him for the OR. After 40 minutes of resuscitation, they called it. Time of death, 4 a.m. The young doctor shuffled into the temporary empty waiting room. They sat in silence. And then David said what all three were thinking. What happened to our pizza? Joe went and found the pizza box where the delivery boy dropped it before he ran from his attackers. It was face up few steps away from the ER sliding doors. Joe grabbed it, brought it in, sat it on the table. They kind of stared at it. One of the residents said, how much do you think we ought to tip them? The residents <sighs> laughed and then they ate the pizza. That's not a joke. That's a real story. Would you have eaten the pizza? Probably. If everyone else was eating the pizza, you would have eaten the pizza? Probably so. You wouldn't have opened the box. I wouldn't have gone and got it. I don't think. I would have. You laugh because it's true. It's true. <laughs> But anger and gallows humor are a generally accepted form of expression among medical students and residents. Sometimes this is self-doubt or grief, and usually it's kind of kept within the group. But this creates a like an in-group language. Right. Because you are very much going through an ordeal together. You're having that rite of passage, trial by fire. Exactly. Experience. Yeah, and you see the same thing in military units as well. Oh, definitely. And police and firemen and Mm -hmm. all of those things. But you're using this joke about some tragic circumstances, this functional shorthand to speak a truth that no one's willing to say. That most people never have to encounter. Very true. Let alone sit in. But you know, we've kind of talked about that absurdity and that incongruity that can occur. And that is such a part of when we find things funny in real life, things that may not even be jokes that it just seems absurd. Mm-hmm. And like one example given in one paper was residents were talking about weird calls they'd gotten, like pages. Mm-hmm. And one said that they'd received one that just said, doctor, 
your patient is on fire. <laughs> oh no, my God. Oh no, my God. Exactly. It's ridiculous. It sounds ridiculous. This is a real thing that is happening. This person is on fire. That's not funny. But the idea that someone just caught fire <laughs> is so absurd. And the, just how it's stated oh is so God. matter of fact. It sounds like someone's sitting there watching a guy catch fire going, doctor, like typing it out. Like, doctor, your patient is on fire. Well, that's what happened. No, that's actually what happened. Someone had to type that message. It didn't spontaneously erupt on a pager. No one said it. You know, like it was actually typed out by someone who saw it happen. And that's absurd. But there's just kind of this shift in it. By making it humorous, you're going from a goal-directed frame of mind to a playful one. And this existential incongruity kind of lies in that clash between our idolized social expectations of what the serious doctor should be and what can reasonably be achieved. Like, you just broke out laughing about that, and most people would. And why is a physician not allowed to do that as well? Because you have to go put the fire out. You have to well, fix you it. You laugh, and then you go deal with it. <laughs> you laugh on your way to go deal with it. Let's, let's not discredit the running. But Gallo's humor is a way to stay sane in an insane place. Right. And it, like, really, when you were doing your month of ER call or, you know, whatever, it was an insane place. It was a place where nothing made sense, where normal rules didn't apply, where anything, literally, anything could happen. And in medical school, you break taboos right off the bat. You're doing autopsies. You're doing dissections, dissections of humans. That's pretty taboo. Right. And there's the classic gallows humor story from my medical school is this where you name the corpses right and a the lot cadavers. of people names name the cadavers a lot of people do that even and though you're supposed to like depersonalize the experience this is their reaction right because you have to deal with this extremely strange activity that you're doing in some way and one group had a man with a very large phallus and he became known as big mo Yes, I remember Big Mo. I never went to the cadaver lab. I yeah, didn't. You did. I went once and I saw that the lady's fingernails were painted and I like I couldn't hang. Yeah, there's just those little pieces of personality that make them human that you can't ignore. Their nails are painted. They have a little tattoo, maybe a little heart. Fingernails and I remember there was a tattoo like on a skinny white guy. It was just like almost like southwestern design. But like those things just bothered me to the point that I could not be there. And the smell was terrible too. I mean let's let's That's not true. forget that. But, but it's yeah. funny reading these papers, you know, you have these like psychologists or sociologists there studying it saying, Oh, well now medical schools are moving away from this and they have memorial services. And they do. We had a memorial service for the people that donated their body to science, and we are truly very, very grateful to them. It's a noble thing to do, and it, like it should not be obfuscated or minimized. And I don't think that calling someone Big Mo minimizes their contribution because you spend hours with that person. You know, like it. I can see how it would be taken that way. I can see how people would find that offensive. But at the same time, everyone wants you to do that. Everyone you will ever practice medicine on. Do you practice medicine on people, with people? I'm sure. not sure. But everyone you will ever practice with for hopes that you did that. Hopes that you know what you're talking about. Well, and also you take that idea of like, is it so bad to give someone a little personality? It's hard to say. You know, it's hard to say, but without a doubt, gallows humor is always going to be a part of medicine. And a lot of, there are, of course, papers 
with people saying that it's terrible. And it can cross a line. It can. It can cross a line to where you are separating yourself from your patient. And that's when you get that problem. But when it exists purely as a anxiety relief, a stress relief, and when it's done in the appropriate manner, it can be a useful tool for coping. Well, and again, you should know your audience. You shouldn't make these jokes with your patients, right? Like, is this something that definitely should always happen behind the scenes? I think it impugns the humanity of the medical providers to say that this is something that they cannot respond to. It holds them to a higher standard than we should and that definitely than most people hold themselves to. You know, when I'm in crisis, my response is to joke. And a lot of people are, but it seems just like when dealing with this, when daily confronting the ideas of death Mm -hmm. and to expect there not to be some anxiety and to expect there not to be a response to it in some way is ridiculous. It, yeah, it is. And like I said, I think that's robbing people of their humanity to say like, no, you must be stoic. Everyone else is freaking out, which you must be stoic, but you have five minutes to gather yourself. But I mean, without a doubt, can be ways that you can do it negatively. Recently, there was a physician that was got in big trouble. Big trouble, you say? Yeah, because she was doing a colonoscopy. And the patient was sedated and had left their recorder on their phone. And they heard all of the derogatory remarks made about the patient while they were doing the colonoscopy and were able to successfully sue them. So just like with any jokes or any coping mechanism, there's a time and place for it. And there's always a line that one can cross. There's a line that one can cross whenever you're dealing with people and with death. Oh, death. Death is a complicated thing to deal with. So I don't know if there's ever an appropriate response to death. And I hate when people try to kind of put out an algorithm or rubric that people have to adhere to during their times of mourning. I hate when people say that a family didn't appear to mourn appropriately on the news when their child is killed. I hate when people complain about what someone wears to a funeral. These things drive me insane. You need to move out of the South. Oh, no, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm joking. It was a joke. It was a joke. So. I find it highly offensive. No, it was a joke. Dude, this is a joke. Stop obfuscating my content. Okay, so while there may not be an appropriate response to death, I think there are some inappropriate responses. And that's hard for me to say, because I believe that people should say what they want when they want to. But we're about to discuss a phenomena that I think maybe shouldn't exist. And that's rare. <laughs> that's rare. This is what one might call, one does call, the internet calls... R.I.P. trolling. Rip trolling? Rip trolling. I think Bubba calls that when he goes mudding. I know. It sounds like something you do on the bayou. <laughs> so trolling. It can happen anywhere. At any time. Bum, bum, bum. Trolls are sneaky bastards. They are. Now, before the profusion of social media, it was often something that would happen on, like, amateur blogs or on the comment section following news stories. Never read the comments. Now... When social media became an entrenched part of our society, it began to take place in forums like Facebook, Twitter, etc. at all. Now, all trolling is purposefully provocative. Its aim is to get a rise out of you. It is the written language counterpart to fifth grade one-upsmanship. See, yo mama jokes and dead baby jokes. But as this writer, Whitney Phillips, who's 
excellent writer. I highly recommend you read all of her things that she's ever written. She's fabulous. Says, like Westboro Baptist Church members who picket military funerals or thieves who study obituaries for funeral information so that they can rob families who are away from home, RIP trolls target people who are mourning their loved ones. And in a couple examples, um, there's a 15-year-old boy who drowned and a memorial page was put up and people trolls began posting photos of drowning victims there's also a 14 year old girl who committed suicide in britain and someone posted an image of a horse and cart pulling the daughter's coffin with the words happy mother's day written on it later a photo appeared of the child and it had a caption help me mommy it's hot in hell what the fuck it's fucked so first of all let's discuss online memorial pages that's a recent creation but it's a natural outgrowth of our digital interaction. Now, there are designated sites where you go just to do this. And they're forevermiss.com or legacy.com or muchlove.com. Facebook sort of inherited this without meaning to. MySpace did it too. Right? We personally experienced that. Yes. What would happen is people would die. And what was one to do with Facebook profiles? of people who had died they were still active even if the other people weren't logging in i feel like this is the start of a dark mirror episode <laughs> oh my god let's write it so one scholar named brubaker studied the phenomenon and he said that there's a type of exposure that a facebook profile creates that's quite new to the breed he says there used to be a specific time and place where we came together to grieve it did a nice job of consolidating those interactions and it also gave us some norms for what was appropriate and what was not appropriate in this setting. Throughout his research, Brubaker said he'd never encountered an RIP troll who actually knew the deceased person. Instead, the trolls were taking advantage of pages which were open to the public. And Whitney Phillips also points out that when she was studying RIP trolls, or just trolls in general, most people, and trolls, agreed that it seemed downright distasteful. Now, there are a variety of claims about why people engage in this sort of behavior. Now, some people say it's because they feel that they should protest the media treating pretty white girls who die differently from everyone else. Oh, protest is every troll's excuse. <laughs> but Phillips decided to research RIP trolling and created an anonymous profile with a name that was not her own. And she went online to observe. Now, almost immediately, she noticed that in this new world of networking, troll profiles began befriending other troll profiles, identifiable by a handle and a profile picture, and forming a sort of, as she puts it, an antisocial networking group. I think now that you have like Twitter trolls with the eggs, you can call it a nest. <laughs> a troll nest. She recruited a group of first-hand informants, and through this she was able to gather screen caps, gossip, and concrete timelines that she would have otherwise not had access to. So she says that the following paper that she's about to give us, and she does give us a hell of a paper, like I said, go read everything she's ever written. She says the following is based on these first and second and occasionally third hand observations, all of which occur within and feed upon the resulting and nearly instantaneous media backlash. Media just feeds the fire. Mm -hmm. Do not feed the trolls. Don't feed the trolls. It's our policy. <laughs> so she says that really this all begins with someone posting... On Facebook's official blog, Max Kelly, in October 2009. And he was acknowledging the fact that 
A lot of people would complain because when someone passed away, their Facebook profile would remain an active profile. And occasionally they'd pop up in someone's sidebar like, you haven't spoken to Blah in a while. Why don't you reconnect with Blah and by posting on his wall? Thanks for reminding me. Yeah, it's really uncomfortable. This has actually happened to me. It's been a while since you talked to. And so they were trying to figure out what to do about this. And so they came up with this idea that they were going to allow friends and family to permanently memorialize people's profiles. And it could be a memorial profile. And then that wouldn't happen anymore. It would change the algorithm. And this sort of function is a weird time capsule that showed the person's life right before they died. But in addition to this, users had started creating fan pages like RIP blank. And these pages were not regulated in the same way. So Facebook sort of, without meaning to, became a grief space. Kelly wanted to, quote, save and share their memories for those who passed. After all, when someone leaves us, they don't leave our memories or our social networks. It's the beginning of a Dark Mirror episode. Mm -hmm. So RIP pages are the fan pages. And unlike a memorialized account, which functions as you know, this sort of time capsule. RIP fan pages allow anyone to participate in the grieving process. So suddenly the bereaved have a sympathetic outlet for their thoughts, feelings, and memories, which they were able to share with friends and strangers alike. Yeah, I mean, I can definitely see the positive aspect of that. You're able to reach out to other people that knew that person and kind of share that grief because it is good to share grief with the community. Right. And it was going well until the whale ate that woman. This is a joke. No. Remember the SeaWorld thing where the trainer was eaten by the whale? No, it just sounds like the start of a joke. It does. <laughs> but that really, you know, troll are going to troll when that happens. And in the same week, there was a disappearance in California of a teen named Chelsea King, who is a pretty young white girl. And the closeness, the proximity of these two events, temporally speaking, kind of brought the eye of the public to the activity of the trolls and their constant posting and trolling of the Chelsea King incident and the SeaWorld incident resulted in what many in the trolling community have come to call the first troller cost. Too soon. Too soon. And this is uh, an incident where a bunch of profiles were blocked or deleted. And of course the trolls responded by creating new profiles and just going back to what they were doing. Now, there were similar occurrences around the same time in Australia, but Aussies being the take-no-shit former prisoners of class warfare that they are, and being smarter than we are, drew a clear distinction between cyberbullying and trolling, and they were the first nation to take punitive measures against trolls. However, despite the punitive measures in Australia... Trolling had kind of become this transnational affair. It was just as easy to mess with someone in America if you were in Australia as it was to mess with someone in Australia if you were in America. Like, there was no Fantastic. border. International fucking with people. Yeah. So it was just a big party. Now, Phillips notes that Facebook trolling was always a little different than standard board trolls or 4chan trolls or Reddit trolls, etc., etc. Because the Facebook protocols were incredibly well honed to drive social interaction and her word enmeshment anonymity of previous trolling was somewhat compromised with the very structure and programming of facebook's platform in this way trolling became a social activity the desire to create ties changed the dynamics of the troll community after an account's deletion the trolls would respawn 
using names in the same family, trying to promote recognition of their previous work within the community. And this stabilized the trolls, quote, lulls economy. Okay, this terminology is ridiculous. I adore her writing. They're spawning. Respawning. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's perfect. No matter how many times I died, I would always come back to David, integrating the basic nominal building block into the first and last names, regardless of gender. David Davidson, Brittany Davidson, David Briggs. Polly, another one of her troll friends, maintained two profile roots, Paul for male accounts and Lee for female. Frank was Francois, Fran, Franny, Frankie. Ruthless was Ruth or Ruthie, etc. In short, although the following might seem almost tautological in its obviousness, trolls on Facebook became friends because they suddenly had stable names to call each other. I just found that very interesting. So they were like developing these alternate personalities. Mm -hmm. Creating their own social ties within their split persona so as we know there's always these kind of like anti-trolling groups and then you get like your pro-trolling groups that have a lot of people in it with the david in the name yes right and so it was a sort of unexpected consequence of these identities stabilizing that conflicts could be prolonged and exasperated who doesn't like to fight with an egg Right, so you know, groups like I think internet trolls are losers, or stop the bullying, or army against low life trolls, or these cruel Facebook trolls need to be locked up for attacking RIP groups. Although many of the groups were created in earnest, most, if not all, were swiftly infiltrated by trolls who shifted their focus from trolling mourners to trolling other trolls. Hence, the title anti-troll and its corresponding objective, anti-lulls. So, the anti-troll group is really interesting. Because they have, they're crusaders, they're vigilantes of sorts, and they want to stop the trolls, but they end up engaging in very similar behavior to the trolls themselves. And it really is like a bizarro Superman thing that happens. So one of the most infamous anti-trolls was Mike Lonston, and he began doxing as many trolls as possible in 2010. Now, this spurred Mike Lonston Week. Well, and so doxing is when you release someone's personal information online. Right. Like factual, true information. It's kind of the worst thing you can do in an online community. I lived in fear of it back when I was social. But Mike Lonston Week was an organized pushback where dozens of trolls cloned his profile and then used the cloned accounts to infiltrate anti-trolling groups in order to lessen his influence and tarnish his reputation within those groups. And trolls describe anti-trolls as tediously self-righteous at best and pathological messianic at worst, often using friends and family of the deceased as collateral in the war that, according to the trolls I've worked with, is more about ego and reputation than good faith defense against the dark arts. Conversely, and unsurprisingly, the anti's public position is that trolls are mentally ill criminals who must be stopped at any cost. So both sides have sort of become radicalized, and they might spend weeks or months stalking targets. Antis amass stockpiles of incriminating screen caps and gossip and any and all docs information and hand it over to authorities. But in America, such acts of anti-trollist vigilantism have, for the most part, fallen on deaf ears. In Britain, however, trolls are taken more seriously by law enforcement. Again, it's important to note that this is 
part of the nature of Facebook's platform. And it has influenced the nature of these interactions because the interactions can go on for such a long period of time and it can really build a rivalry. Right, you can just keep responding to each other and yeah, it links you to the other trolls. And to the anti-troll who's pissing you off. Like you can go after this guy over and over again. He can go after you. Because you're friends. You're friends or whatever. But compared to board or forum trolling, which are so fleeting, even comment section trolling can go so fast. This is going to cause more extreme behavior because it's linked to ego. It's linked to identity. Facebook trolls take their cues from legitimate users. They scour the site for the most sensitive people and the most sensitive subjects. And in response to RIP pages or similar things, which deal with death, trolls emphasize the visceral, resulting in an aesthetic, which both mirrors and monsters the objects of their ridicule. Another feature of Facebook that makes it so ripe for trolling is the architecture of the site, which, quote, positions the user as the subject of every sentence he or she utters, indeed as the center of his particular, and therefore the, social universe. Self-involvement, in other words, is built into the code. One is primed to take things personally. The only universe that matters. Mm-hmm. The mm-hmm, self-universe. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to put this out into the self-universe, and I'm going to say... She notes, and I thought this was so interesting, that Facebook trolls frequently shift to the third person to describe their own actions. She says, I'd be having a normal, non-troll-related conversation with a collaborator, and suddenly he or she would mention some funny thing that, insert person's troll profile, had done. As if the profile was an entirely different person. They're completely separating that personality out from their own. She says this is not to be read as trolling is just an act. While a troll may be a creation of a person, it may not reflect the person. I am my own line identity, but my own line identity isn't me. As I read this, I was like, this is kind of bullshit. Because personally, I think it's a bit like saying, I didn't hit the pedestrian. My car hit the pedestrian. But then by the same token, I guess you could say, like, if the car wasn't there, it wouldn't have been that big of a deal to run into the person. Like, if you just bumped into them. It wouldn't have hurt as much. So in that way, I guess it's like you are responsible, but the identity is just a vehicle. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I think it does. You know, it's just, again, it's separating that personality out. It's not me. It's my online personality just seeking justice and trying to point out the irony and the two-facedness of other people. We're just going to just randomly comment on somebody's page. I'm so sad that happened. Highly offensive. But Facebook did try to put some things in place in order to discourage trolling. But trolls responded by kind of being like, all right, cool. And so they sort of make these accounts as sort of kamikaze efforts. They know that the account's going to be deleted. They know that they're done. But as a result of that, the behaviors are much less organized. I mean, let's talk more about this RIP trolling. And I'm going to get dragged down to just trolling because, I mean, this is a particular oddity. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is something where people are purposefully applying this kind of sick humor to people they don't know Mm -hmm. that have died. Usually. In the name of pointing out the hypocrisy that they feel that people have by commenting on a deceased person's memorial page. Okay, well, first it's important to note that trolls do distinguish between real RIP trolling 
in which the troll knows the deceased or the family, like that's considered like very taboo. And these anonymous, more media-driven examples of RIP trolling. Now, there's a sort of etiquette to it that probably doesn't make sense outside the trolling community. At least it doesn't to me. There's etiquette to trolling? Yes. Now, Wilson Mazon, who was an informant, says that family members didn't deserve that sort of treatment. So it sort of repudiates the most vicious RIP behaviors and calls attention to the implicit and widely accepted claim that proper targets of trolling have done something wrong or stupid or offensive enough to warrant retribution. Now, most want to say that public expressions of grief are tacky and disrespectful. This is a very common sentiment among most trolls. If someone they knew died, the explanation goes, they'd be sure to discourage even the simplest announcement to say nothing of a public group accessible to any bumbling idiot on Facebook. In their minds, Facebook is always wrong place, wrong time especially when you're dealing with real-life tragedy. So there's sort of this idea that any public grieving is inauthentic. But most trolls are not gunning for people experiencing, quote, authentic grief online. That there is such a thing as authentic grief is a major assumption on the part of trolls, but it's treated as a given. Rather, the vast majority of RIP trolls' energies are directed to so-called grief tourists, users who have no real-life connection to the victim and who, according to the trolls, could not possibly be in mourning. Therefore, the phrase, I didn't know you, but I'm very sorry you're dead, is seen as a flashing neon declaration of trollability. This isn't grief, Polly once argued. This is boredom and a pathological need for attention masquerading as grief. No, like they're just asking for it by being vulnerable, empathetic, sympathetic. How terrible. How terrible. Like that being said, I would never think to go comment on a random person's memorial page. Like it would never occur to me in a like sorry you're dead kind of way. Like so I don't know what drives that. Like I don't understand it. I mean, people can relate to it. People can see their personal tragedies in it. You know, and they can see people that they may know that died of similar circumstances. Or they may be able to relate to that person's circumstances. Let's say they have you know, for example, like an abusive boyfriend and this girl was killed by an abusive boyfriend. And that's a way for them to, they might be projecting a little, but it's also a way for them to express that fear and truly grieve that person because they can truly place themselves in that position. Yeah, this segment of the show is called Jacob Attempts to Deal with Samantha's Sociopathy. <laughs> I'm just saying, like, I've never, like, even if I felt that way, I just can't imagine actually writing it, reaching out. Like, that's, but then again, that's just my crazy. Yeah, but it's like saying there's something wrong with you being sad or expressing your grief about, like, the terror attacks in London. Right. I get that. Why is that more acceptable than grieving someone that died from... You know, something like, it, I mean, just the example given, like, an abusive boyfriend. Right. Why Why is that worse? And it, it's not, is the answer, because this is an arbitrary line that's drawn by trolls, because they're looking for people that they can call hypocritical, that they can say are wrong, and that they can put up as examples. Well, and... I think a lot of this can be construed as sort of a commentary on the media. And O-Ring, a man who wrote extensively on the challenger joke cycle, interestingly, said the media's insistent rhetoric 
of tragedy, grief, and mourning might well have been regarded as an affront and intrusion by a viewing public, who felt that they were perfectly capable of determining their own emotional responses to the event. It was perhaps inevitable that a rebellion against such media homiletics might surface, and humor was the strategy of that rebellion. Now, unlike responses to media coverage of one single event that we're bombarded with 24-7, RIP trolling is much probably a much larger commentary focused on much smaller and more personal events. It's as if they're saying, you're already worshipping at the altar of an unfamiliar corpse. So here, let me show you a few more for good measure. Also try to bait normal users into making death threats so that they can then report their profiles and show that they violated Facebook's terms of service and have them kicked off. Oh, joy. Yes. But they do see themselves as pointing out hypocrisy. This is one troll soliloquy that was posted on Chelsea King's memorial page, or one of her memorial pages. And I just thought it was interesting because it engages in some interesting debate tactics. They say, there are so many rapes and murders happening throughout the world. There are many parents mourning their dead children, especially during catastrophes such as Haiti or Chile, as well as human trafficking efforts in the third world countries. There is no reason to blow Chelsea's death to such proportions. It is not merely a mourning now, it's a glorification. This in itself is inhumane. I mean, that's just a big cognitive error. It's a framing error. And it's a huge problem. It's just not how humans work. Not appropriately. I mean, we take three hours to get to the point here. You know, we take three hours to bring you there a story. Of course, uh, well, I'm going to quote Stalin or misquote Stalin or misattribute Stalin. It's not Stalin. I know what you're going to say. But, you know, one person is a tragedy. A million people are a statistic or a thousand people are a statistic. It's very true. Our brains are geared to work in a way where we seek out stories. We seek out that identifiable face. Now, in an interesting twist, there was a young girl named Jaleesa Reynolds, who was a black teenager living in California who went missing the same week that Chelsea King did. And there was very little public interest in her case. So one troll named Ruthless created a page for Jaleesa Reynolds. Now, she was not exactly taking a principled stand against racial and socioeconomic bias in mainstream media coverage. As a general rule, trolls don't take principled stands. They provoke. So not surprisingly, Phillips says, the Jaleesa Reynolds page was used primarily to bait self-righteous white people who were scandalized by the suggestion that they cared more about a dead white girl than a dead black girl. That said, whether or not Ruthless intended to make a political point, a political point was indeed made. And so this highlights this cyclical nature of the troll feeding cycle. They need the media to become hysterical. And the media needs trolls to terrorize, and then they get hysterical about the terrorizing. Each side benefits from the overreaction of the other. Feeds off each other. Mm -hmm. Don't feed the troll. It's easy to laugh at an off-color joke. So Phillips goes on to say that there's ample precedent for these sorts of behaviors. But RIP trolling is not the same as laughing at a TV screen or telling a horribly insensitive joke in the privacy of your living room. Real people are really affected by RIP trolling, complicating any analysis that focuses exclusively on context. She was in a very difficult situation as she tried to sort of render a verdict or come to some analytic conclusion about this phenomenon. 
And it kind of came to a head when she was asked to go do this interview for the BBC in which she was literally sitting across from a man named Robert Mullaney. She said, it's extremely easy, for example, to place Tom Mullaney in an abstract category of British teen suicides and to talk about Trolls' defacement of his memorial page as representative of the feedback response loop between Trolls and the mainstream media. That is indeed what happened. But it's much more difficult to say so to Robert Mullaney, Tom's father, which is precisely what I was asked to do during the fateful BBC radio interview. My analysis of the situation namely that what happened on Tom's page wasn't about Tom personally, suddenly felt flat and inconsequential. Tom was someone's child, and now he's dead. And whether or not trolls intended for his parents to see those images, they did, and they were devastated. And there's no theoretical framework that can make that okay. And so while that was her kind of moment of truth, that was her reckoning, she describes something that happened to one of her informants a little later. So this is Polly Sokash, and she describes him as one of the most committed trolls I've ever encountered. She says that he's a normal guy who also happens to be a troll, and the normal guy side of the equation, which for the record is really quite pleasant, doesn't always align with his trolling persona. So when he messaged me one afternoon to say that the inevitable had finally happened, that he stumbled upon an RIP page dedicated to his son's friend's recently deceased sister, I knew he was genuinely concerned. I asked him what he was going to do. Monitor it, he said, adding that if the trolling got out of hand, so far real fans of the page were ignoring the trolls, the fastest and most effective way to stop a raid in its tracks. He would create a new profile and send the admins of the page a personal message, warn them, suggest they make the group private, which, he continued, the trollishness returning to his voice is what they should have done in the first place. Now, she doesn't attempt to draw a real conclusion. She just sort of highlights the absurdity of it all. Facebook memorial trolling is deeply problematic. It is a site of resistance. It is a site of hegemony. It does real and significant emotional damage. It unearths truths about our relationship to mainstream media. It is simultaneously cruel and amusing and aggressive and playful and real and pretend and hurtful and harmless as are the trolls themselves. It really is as simple and as complicated as that. So that question's there, just like with gallows humor, really in all instances, in medicine and then with this RIP trolling, you know, where is that line? Where do we draw that line? I mean, that question's even asked whenever the Supreme Court and the FCC is looking at things is, where's that line? And they say, we'll know it when we see it. And I don't like lines. Lines offend me, and lines make my life way more difficult. Because I'm never going to perfectly define them. And I don't think anyone can. But I think that the trolling is really interesting, because I don't know if they perceive it only as a joke. And I don't know if it's funny. There's a great line. It's pretty, but is it art? It's irreverent, but is it a joke? Just by something riffing on the grotesque, or the irreverent, does it make it gallows humor? I mean, I think the answer is is no. And each of us kind of has to define that line for ourselves. Clearly, if it alleviates some kind of pain for you, if it lets off some sort of pressure, if it relieves an anxiety, it does serve a purpose. But I guess my line, my line would be at what cost? And I don't mean driving Miss Daisy in the back seat clutching her pearls because she heard an F-bomb. I mean, like, are you actually hurting someone? 
Are you actually hurting someone when you use that word? Are you actually making someone's day worse? And I think that humor is, for reasons we've discussed today, is universal. And we all have humor because we all need humor. Mm-hmm. We need jokes. We need to relieve the tension of every day. There's everyday problems that we face, and it's a way of connecting with other people. So maybe it shouldn't be at the cost of other people. Not one person. Not one specific person who can no longer defend themselves. Because even with self-deprecating jokes or politically incorrect jokes or off-color jokes or grotesque or sick jokes, it's a disembodied they. And the disembodied they, the disembodied man, the disembodied powerful deserve to be made fun of. But when it's a dead kid who has a family, maybe that crosses a line. Maybe that is not your forum for social commentary. Get a podcast like a normal person. But really, humor is one of the few ways that everybody can connect. We give people a respect and an understanding, and we fully realize that they have more stories to tell than the ones that we see on the surface. We're able to move beyond the narrow stereotypes that we hold in our brains about what other people might be like when they tell us. And when they tell us in a meaningful way, in a way that causes a visceral reaction that relieves pressure and anxiety, when we are able to connect through this feeling of lightness and play that comes with a joke, that comes with a great story, that comes with a connection. Even if it's subversive, even if it's off color, we forgive it because we want to laugh. We want to laugh. We need to. It's not just a story. And that's not just a story. Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining Podcasts. Society-13.com I like to listen.